what kind of matches are you shooting this year? You're shooting more, mostly PRS. So, uh, so I'm shooting as many PRS two days as that's on the East coast within reason for me to get to. Right. I mean, so I love shooting out West, but you know, flying and the extra time, I, I don't mind doing it. It's just too expensive, you know, on the East coast, uh, I can drive to a lot of hours, damn near everything within 16 hours, right? And and a lot of matches within eight, 10 hours. So uh, anything that's reasonable yep. for me to go to, I, I'm going to go to. I shoot a club match almost every weekend. I mean, so I, I'm just shooting all, all the time. Uh, as far as what else am I shooting is I'd love to shoot some more NRLs, but uh, seems like, you know, they don't have any on the East Coast. So I started shooting NRL Hunter Series this year. Right. Most fun I've ever had. I built the uh, ultralight rifle for that. Uh, you know, it was awesome, man. I started weighing triggers. How much is this trigger weigh versus Tell this me about the build. This... What, what components are you using? Okay, so uh, uh, I went down and triggers were the, hell, there was two ounces difference between trigger A and trigger B. So I ended up going to Trigger Tech Diamond. Because okay. it was that much lighter than I, I love the Bix and Andes. That's what I shoot yep. all the time. But I wanted to shoot 15 pound class and I wanted the best optic I could put or 12 pound class and I wanted the best optic I could put on there. And uh, and I wanted a steel barrel. So yeah. that's funny. Uh, I'm thinking the same as you, so, but continue. I shot a pound and a half under, almost two pounds under class. So I, I, I didn't know what it was going to be. So I wanted to make sure I had enough to gain the shit out of it until I shot it. Well, <laughs> then I realized I'm an idiot. So anyway, so my build is a uh, Lone Peak Arms Fusion Action Titanium. Okay. Nice. Um, I went that route because I wanted to free. I didn't know where I was. Gonna, it was the first piece to the puzzle. I wanted to make sure I could run a really good optic and a long barrel and steel barrel, right? I wanted as much ass to that barrel as I could put and a decent muzzle brake on it. So um, anyway, so I went ahead and I, I'm like, well, first off the bat, I bought that Lone Peak Fusion action and uh, uh, I love it. It's great. Um, <laughs> glad I did it. Um, then I called uh, Bricks down at Hawk Hill and said, hey man, I need a barrel. What do you got? And I think he sold me a medium Palma barrel and 28 inch blank okay. and i'm like let's see what it takes to me i'll just start cutting it i'll start it at 27 inches and then see what it weighs and then make my adjustments because i'll just chuck it up in the lathe and <laughs> uh and and make it happen so i put that blank on there and then i went through gosh i weighed every muzzle brake on the planet had a bunch of aluminum ones made up that weighed less than an ounce or less than 1.1 ounces for okay. a big four port five port muzzle brake and they worked really great. Um, but MDT came out with this new magnesium carbon fiber chassis this year. Yeah. And it's been supposed to come out for a year and a half. Well, finally, I got my hands on one. And, dude, the thing weighs like a pound and a half, right? Adjustable cheek piece. Uh, magne- it's got titanium bolts in the daggone thing. I mean, wow. it, it, it's... they went that far. Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. They they it's a folder. It's and the folder locks up great. And I mean, this thing is like the coolest chassis I ever put my hands on. So I didn't know what that was gonna weigh when I got it. So I was making sure I was well within the realm of shooting the light hunter class. 
So I kept cutting all these corners. And then I wanted to run a Skypod because yep. um, I'm like a field match, you know, in all my years of hunting, guiding, everything else, never in my life have I been able to use a six to nine bipod, even groundhog hunting, right? Unless I was laying in a truck bed, you know? So I'm yep. like, okay, well, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to run a Skypod. And I'm like, well, well, shit, if I'm going to run a Skypod, I might as well make this thing light enough so I can run a two pole Skypod. So I made it light enough I could run a two-pole Skypod, right? <laughs> now I can game it and I can go either way, man. I can sit there and I can shoot kneeling off the damn thing. Two legs uh, out vortex. in front of a rock and use a rock as a rear support. You know, I, mean, I just I had all these great ideas in my mind, which really turned out to be a bunch of stupid shit after I shot the first match. I'm like, oh, okay. So I need a bipod, I need a sandbag, I need a tripod, and a pair of binoculars, right? And that's about you know, it. But, uh, but, but I, I had all these great ideas of PRS gaming the shit out of this, man. I know <laughs> I know how to do this shit, right? Uh, and then I go out there and all them competition dynamics guys really know how to do that shit. <laughs> yeah, and they're they good do. at it, right? <laughs> yep. So, so I, uh, I uh, wanted to put a, a Razer AMG on there, right? I wanted to run a good, you know, sponsored by Vortex, and, and uh, I wanted to to highlight some of their better stuff, but I wanted good quality glass because, you know, the older I get, the worse my eyes are getting. And, uh, you know, the most important thing on that rifle really is, uh, the glass and the barrel, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that is the two, the two keys to the puzzle, man. So the, uh, so I, I wanted to go with that. So that weighed 27 and a half ounces. And then I put, I went through five or six, seven different sets of rings and I cataloged them all, man. I figured out how to make the lightest rifle in the world or how to add where I could add. And really one of the lighter rings I found was the Vortex rings. Uh, and they were damn good rings. Let's see if this is the box form. Uh, I think it is. I think it's their Pro Series rings. Those things only weighed like, they were really secure. And I did the, ham the Scott Satterley hammer test with them, you know. Uh, and, uh, gosh, I think they only weighed like three ounces for the set where I was like four, four and a half for the others, you know, I mean, so I'm, I'm cutting like quarter ounces off everything. Um, so I put that on there and then, and, and, and then I went to the aluminum muzzle brake and the whole damn thing with a bipod, I was down about nine pounds or something. Right. And I'm like, Oh, Okay, well maybe I we can I could admiring. I could go a little more, right? So then I took that muscle break off, and I'm like, well, I'd really like to run a five four Gen three fat bastard on there, right? So right. that muzzle what break the, went. I, what cal what caliber are you shooting in bullet? So I I looked at every game and asked way to do it, uh, <laughs> and originally I I was going to go quarter bore shoot the twenty five forty seven and shoot uh, the blackjack bullets and hoping that Berger would have come out with theirs uh, and uh, run those at, uh, oh, let's see, I think I had to run 2,900 feet a second with those. I think that yeah. was the number. 2,900, I think, was the number I had to run with those. And I did a lot of calling around to make sure I could do that, and I could. And then, I'm, and then I talked to a couple guys, said, you know what? Again, I'm crazy on on things being perfect before and after the match. And they're like, you know, consistency. Yep. They're a little bit seating depth. You're having trouble getting them right now. They're having trouble getting them made from uh, Sierra because Sierra's backboarded with all the craziness. And I'm like, okay, screw this. I'm gonna go six five forty seven God's cartridge. You know, <laughs> you know, the best six five ever made. 
And, uh, and I have a lot of options with that because I know that I'm going to make power factor where it wants to be with 140s at 2960 to 2980. Uh, I could shoot 135s and I could run yeah. those suckers at, you know, 2820 all day long. But would that be the, um, what bullet is the 20, uh, 135? Is that Lapua or somebody else? So I run two bullets. And uh, so the Burger Hunter makes their, I think it's a classic or the Elite Hunter, the 135s. Okay. And I run them at 2950. And because I couldn't get those, I ran A tips, uh, 135 A okay. tips. And I ran them at 2850, 2860. And they were just, happy as could be i will say those a tips were the worst bullet i ever shot when i tried to run my normal 40 60 80 100 thousandths jump man i had flyers i had <laughs> got things shot two inches right i put them suckers 25 to 35 off the lands and they shot one little hole all the way out at distance man they were just huh. the point cool. twos at 100 and they were in the point fours at a thousand every time uh, and we had the same thing on a Psalm too. I did a Psalm, same thing. Those bullets, unlike most Hornaday bullets, really like that 45 to 50 and that 75 to 90. Uh, and they generally don't like that 20 to 30, right? You know, like a hybrid does. And uh, man, that 135 A tip out of three different rifles did not like anything other than 25 to 35. But man, you put it in that window, it didn't matter where it was, it was happy. Um, so uh, that was the game in this cartridge I could come up with that had the least amount of velocity or least amount of recoil because I looked at initial recoil and the flattest trajectory to compensate for uh, unknown you distance. know incorrect yardages unknown distances yeah. and you know good quality BC for wind drift. Uh, then the 130 burgers I pointed some 130 hybrid or the AR hybrids OTMs. I think they call them the OTMs. Uh, and I had those up at 2930, 2920. Yep. And that was probably the best for the numbers, ballistically for the numbers, but I couldn't get my hands on them. You know, so I pointed those and the BC isn't as high as like the A tips or whatever, but uh, I had 500 of them. I shot them once and, uh, you know, now I'm to whatever the hell I can get my hands on, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think six five forty seven is the is the magic cartridge for that. I shot my gun like say a pound and a half under uh, weight. Now the next one I shoot, uh, it, I won't be underweight I'll, because I thought, <laughs> man, I'm going to be weight. able to run this tri sky pod. I'll be running this bipod. <laughs> I'll be able to do this. And dude, I uh, you know I'm going to the PRS sky pod with just the one section extension. Yeah. That's exactly what I did. And, yeah. and realistically, I put a full length rail on that rifle so I can slide it all the way back so I can get whatever elevation get I need. Yeah. And I and I put a pod lock on it or a throw lever on it. So yeah. uh, where I can lock it halfway, run it home and, and close it. And after shooting the match, of course, each one's going to be different. And I think those matches is, again, most fun I ever had. And I, but I think it's going to come down to each match director. I think you're going to shoot that match. It's either going to be the best match you ever shot or the worst match you ever shot, depending Which on whether the match director big learning situation for you, right? It is right. If Scott was setting every one of them up, I'm sure they'd all be great, but seven different people trying to run Scott's McDonald's recipe. 
you know, I think uh, some of them are going to be, you know, you get what you order and others are going to be like, well, we're going to make it for you, you know, uh, so our way, <laughs> we're going to make it way. our way or we're going to make it your way. Right. Yeah. So uh, I'm not, I'm not sure how they're going to play out. I, I plan on shooting. Uh, I think there's a little bit of that I th- going back. I think that were, there was a little bit of that at the New Mexico match. I heard, uh, I heard day one was a little bit of our way. <laughs> this is how we hunt here. <laughs> and then day two, they made it a little easier and started putting some flags out there on at least the first target and uh, giving people some vectors. And <laughs> that was a little more of the uh, your way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. So there was, there was some really low scores day one. Uh, yeah. And then day two, um, it was, it was a lot easier. So, <laughs> well, you know, I think the key to that is to not really be hunting targets. Right. I mean, yeah, I will say that the Chaz McCrater put on an amazing match on his, that was the first one. And that's, I went out and it was colder than hell and we drove all the way across the country to do it. Uh, but I, I will say that it was, it was so awesome, man. You know, the everything blind stages, we ran 18 stages in like six hours. Um, and you know, it's as soon as you load your mags and you wipe off your dope card and you're looking, there's no, the stage brief, there's, you're shooting three coyotes facing or four coyotes facing left, right? Nobody's telling you that there's a sign there. That's what you need to do. So you write that down and there's a big four next to the first one. So are you ready? Yep. Run 50 yards over here and then uh, you'll find a shooter box. You know, your time starts now go, you know, and, uh, you go over and, and you can't see all the targets from those stakes, right? But you know where the vector is. And then you step in the box and maybe you can see him. Maybe you can't. Maybe you got to run 20 yards to the right out of the box to get a range on a target. But yep. then you find them all. And then then you build that position. And, man, we're losing. The PRS is my jam. I love the game. I love the competition. I love the shoot it. But, man, I'm missing uh, – some of that real hunting stuff I'm missing. I think I'm being too dumbed out, right? Put your gun here, point it this direction, shoot two shots, move it here. Only do it this way, shoot two shots. And then, you know, do the, do it, do it this way. Yeah. Well, there's better ways to do it sometimes. Right. So I love the whole idea of here's the shooting box, figure it out, right? (laughs) Solve the problem. Right. And someone really smart might say, Oh, well, hell I can just lay right here and shoot these prone. Right. And I'm like, I'll let do that, you know, and I start <laughs> to shoot them all off a tripod. But but still, that's that part of the game that I love so much is that quick problem solving. So, boom, you yeah. got to find it, quick, make the decisions, make you a more effective hunter, a more effective killer, a more effective everything, you know, just really move things in a better direction. And and, and I, I really, after I shot that match, I, I came back shooting the next match thinking clear, right? I mean, it it kind of opened my mind up a little more and didn't, didn't have me in this regiment so much. And, uh, I took three guys out there with me and it was the best time every one of us ever had in a match. And some of them were OG guys, right? They were original PRS guys. And they're like, wow, this is, this is what matches should be now. Right. Um, that's cool. And and I don't think PRS should go that way, but I mean, I just think that, you know, that, that is a, that is something I'm missing. Uh, is to allow my creativity or say, well, hey, man, as long as I got it on my back, I can figure out how to do it in a time frame. Let me find a better way to do it, right? Yeah. Here's my area. Let me see. And let's push the sport to the next level, right? You know, so 
and eventually guys are going to come up with tripods that deploy faster and guys are going to come up with better binoculars that look through, you know, and range through I am looking stuff. forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so and I uh, shot the, I shot the first one that Scott put on and at cameo last year, um, his kind of conceptual match, if you will. And similar to what you did in Nebraska, we shot 18 stages in one day because I was one of the ROs helping out. And uh, so we were kind of the test group and he's like kind of watching us run the match, making sure he's liking how we're setting up. And I swear every single stage I'd go up to the, to the box, if you will. He's like, here's your limit. Here's your limit. I'd look at him. We're like, can I go prone right there? He's like, can you? It's like, I'm going prone. Like every time, if I can go prone, I'm going to get as much support as I can. And I think I surprised him a few times where he kind of looked at me and was like, I didn't think you could shoot from there. <laughs> I didn't think of that right. one, you know, but that's just like yeah. you're saying that problem solving. And it, it was a lot of fun. And we were shooting in 110 degree weather and it was hot and physically taxing. And God, I, I just, I loved it. I mean, it was a lot of fun. I think I ruined a barrel because of it, but uh, okay. that that's why I'm going to an all steel barrel this year. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I I saw some the barrel was shooting really good beforehand. Now it it walks and who knows why? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, it amazed me how many times I'm looking. I'm like, okay, there's the four targets. Ding 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 ding. I write them all down, and I'm like, okay, and I go to build my position. I'm like, where in the hell did they go? <laughs> there's one little twig out there that is 60 yards in front of me that covers two of the targets. And I can't, I mean, it's like, and I'm like, I know they were here and I moved my head around, can't find it. And it's, it was, if we have more like that, that it's like, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. And it's like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Which happens in the real world, man, you're hunting. Oh yeah. And all of a sudden, right there it is. Boom. Whoa. Where's that? Right. And, yep. uh, I, I, it's, it's, it's all the fun for me. I mean, I would, I would travel and do those all the time. And, and I don't know that the best shooter will win each one because it's going to be a little more about how you find it or whatever, but you will be a lot better shooter shooting them. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think they're the way to go. So I, I've got another one for you and I, I would really love to invite you out to, to Colorado and then go up to Wyoming and shoot the night four CLR match. I'd love to see you put together a, a Magnum rifle and go shoot some long distance stages with us. Well, so I built a Magnum. I built a rifle just for that match. Yeah. Uh, and I built a 547. No. Well, so here's a, here's a, here's a sad long story. Uh, so I've been wanting to go to that match for forever. Right. Cause I'm, I'm one of Scott's biggest fans. Right. Um, uh, so last year I built this rifle. I did a 6.5 PRC. I ordered a fast twist barrel, 156 burgers, pointed them, pulling a 387 BC out of the daggone things at, you know, 2980, 3000 feet a second, right? I mean, it is a monster, low recoiling, beautiful gun for, it's the perfect, you know, the perfect setup for all of that, Eat, eating the wind and everything else. And I'm like, man, this is going to be it. So... Anyway, this year, uh, Doug Koenig, you know, called and we've been talking about doing a match and we were going to do it in Missouri and going to do it two or three different places. Well, finally, uh, 
we had it set up to go down in Missouri and then all of a sudden it changed and we ended up where we're going to go to cameo, right? We were going to run a match there. So we looked through the PRS schedule, the NRL schedule, make sure there's nobody anywhere nearby and we're all good. And we locked the date in three weeks later. I call, or, uh, we call a buddy of ours and say, Hey man, you going to come shoot our match. Yeah, man. What a weekend is it? And we're like, it's uh June 12th. He's like, June 12th. Well, we're going to be at Scott's match. I'm like, yeah. I thought Scott's match was in July. So I called Scott and I'm like, dude, I'm like, man, <laughs> do we need to cancel our match? He's like, no, he says, my match is going to fill up. No, you know, no problem at all. I'm like, man, I had no idea. And, uh, as the next year, we won't be on the same weekend, but so we're going to be at cameo running a, a fantastic match that weekend. But, um, the bad thing is, is all the good shooters are going to be at the, at Scott's match and get, you know, that that's, I said, just give me a list. Anybody who shot your match the last five, last five years, we won't be there. We won't let them in. And he's like, no, they're already in. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Okay. That, so, that yeah, match. I was, that was on my bucket list to shoot. So next year we're going to set up probably a week before a week after Scott. So hopefully we can shoot our match and then stay there and shoot his or vice versa. All right. So we'll stay yeah. in touch. Cause I live in Denver. You come stay with me for a couple of days. Oh, do you really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm uh, in Centennial, which is the south side of Denver. So, okay. Yeah. I did some, uh, used to do a lot of hunting down in Pueblo area. So, yep. All right. You know the area. Way, way, <laughs> way, way back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But, so, my, uh, my uh, ELR rifle, you know, Scott's match isn't a true ELR match, but yeah, because it is longer than a PRS match. Uh, and bigger calibers, um, I call it an ELR match. But um, I'm taking a 300 Norma, necking it down to 7 mil, um, then blowing out the shoulders. So it's a 7 300 Norma improved. And yep. I'm trying to decide between the two bullets, either Burger 190s or A-tip 190s. And that's kind of why I was leading you on the question on the A-tips and which ones you like and why. But... Uh, I, I have a hundred of each towards the burgers, probably, right? Yeah. So what I see is more BC degradation. Uh, the A tips really buck the wind pretty good, yeah. but I haven't seen a consistent, a really, really, really consistent BC on those. Uh, so I see less wind, but more vertical, right? Huh. Yeah. Uh, in an ELR match, I. That's with the, the two lots that I've shot, okay? You can't judge everything based on that. But the two lots sure. I've shot, that's that's what I've seen. I would say shoot them both and see what what basically gives you the best numbers at, you know, through ideally at the muzzle and at distance. So that is my that was that's my PRC throated way out there with those 156s. And man, nice. That BC on that bullet is 387 when I point them. So you do some math on a 156 bullet doing 3000 feet a second, 387 with no recoil. You yeah. know, I mean, minimal recoil. It's a pretty legit package. Uh, yeah. And then I throated it out where that sits way out there. Pretty good. Running out of a medium action. And it's, it's pretty happy. Last year so. I shot it with a uh, seven Psalm medium action. Okay. The uh, Burger 184, um, uh, not Palma, F-class bullet. Okay. Uh, I think it's pointed. Um, 
but it shot super consistent for me. Um, I shot a not a whole a real impressive group at a thousand yards. It was like eight inches, but then that cone of fire did not change all the way out to 2,200 yards. 2,200 oh, yards. Wow. It was a 24 inch group, and I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah this is a good bullet right. you know just like it and it was perfectly round there was no vertical stringing it was a round group at 2200 yards and i was like that's amazing so <laughs> well those are the groups i look for like you know i almost always take that group that's a square so those triangle groups typically become squares at a thousand so and huh. I almost look for, it looks like a number five of a dice, right? Just evenly yeah. distributed back and forth pattern, left and right. And uh, and those are the ones that just are always happy at every distance. Mm -hmm. I can shoot that little lower vertical that may only have, you know, may have an inch and a half less uh, vertical, but it has a little more horizontal and uh, that might be a better choice for the, the ELR stuff, but, you know, I, I won the king of the mile with a dasher, right? <laughs> you know, that went transonic at 1,300 yards, and, and realistically, my numbers lined up the whole way. You know what I mean? It's yeah. You find those nice, stable, happy nodes, and like you say, that cone of fire just stays. And then if you have a decent bullet that, or a d decent case that has a... Uh, uh, good number you know good good sds all the way out and it's very efficient it holds up you're 300 are you running uh that 8133 in that i have eight pounds of it but i i've been told it's too fast and i'm oh. looking at different powders so i'm looking at uh h50 bmg i'm looking at 20 and 29 um there was another couple of powders, but I was looking at this, even the slower powders. It's a 30 okay. inch barrel. So a lot yeah, of, a lot of time I, to burn it. I heard a lot of those, uh, ELR guys are really, really, really liking that because it's so stable and, uh, they're running out of darn near everything. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, SDs are always pretty decent and, um, uh, you know, anyway, I, I've just heard nothing but great out of that. I know I was going to run it in, uh, uh, a seven, 300 PRC and, okay, uh, yeah. which I was you the know. other choice. It was, if, if Lapua had come out with 300 brass. PRC brass at the same time, they came out with the Norma brass. <laughs> that's when I made my decision. I was like, ah, Lapua Norma done. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, what, three months later they announced 300 PRC brass. I'm like, uh, oh, well, right. <laughs> I already bought my brass. <laughs> I already have my big bolt face uh, magnum action. So <laughs> it is what it is now. But yeah, that yeah. Uh, that PRC was another option I was considering. So that 7300 Norma is a wicked sucker for about 600 rounds. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you say that. So I have a old seven rim mag barrel. We're going to chop and rechamber. That's going to be my fire farming barrel. And then I have three, uh, competition barrels. So there'll be three match grade barrels. One will be for low development. One will be for making sure low development is good and practicing. And then one will be for, for matches. <laughs> so yeah, the, uh, the first few times I seen bullets blow up, it was out of a, 
seven three hundred uh, Norma, which I think it was a seven Hulk or whatever. You know the yeah the other 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 version of that was, but basically the bullet went out about thirty yards, went poof every time. <laughs> uh, and that thing, I'm telling you what, it, I don't know that I'd want to shoot a match over eighty rounds with it uh, because I don't know that it's going to last more than eighty rounds, right? Yep. But uh, before things start really, really changing. But man, those first 60, that sucker is going to shoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll have a day one barrel and a day two barrel. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But uh, uh, I, I'm not planning on running it at its max speed. I, I was thinking 3,200 or less, you know, somewhere where it's it's definitely taking advantage of that high BC seven mil bullet but not pushing it to the cartridges maximum. I've, I've heard guys running it up to 34, 3,600 feet. Yeah. I've seen 34 to 37. Right. Yeah. And and that's the, that's when I seen those things coming apart. And I, I think they like to cruise about 32, 32, 50 pretty well from the guys I've seen that that ran them. This is years ago. The world's changed a whole lot now. So, uh, but you know, four or five years ago, that was kind of like a, uh, you know, they, they either pushed them to insanity, you know, that 34, 35, 36 and on up, or they typically cruised to 3150, 3250. And those guys got a little more life out of them. Well, how um, was the consistency though? Was it a little more consistent too? No. Oh, you're breaking my heart. But, but it was, you know, th- that was the days of everybody put everything 10 or 20,000 off the lands and we didn't know how to do load development. And we didn't have, you know, we didn't, we didn't have the technology that we have today and, and, and the bullets that we have today. And, and we didn't do things the same way. I mean, we just, you know, gosh, it's, it's hard to that think that five years ago, it, it is a totally different world, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, and there was a handful of guys that, that that were doing it, but not really. I mean, you know, and and to run a lot of jump and uh, and to do jump nodes where you got different pressure waves and and all that that stuff just wasn't wasn't happening then. So, um, you know, hell, you ten shots later, that throat's in a different place, right, on that gun. You know what I mean? So, oh, absolutely. Uh, if it, if it, if I you know if I uh, Gosh, I would almost want to jump one. I'd want to try jumping one at that like hundred thousands plus, right? And see, um, see, you know, have one throated that far and see if it would get happy. And if it did, then that would probably run, run across, you know, and, and get you through, uh, versus your zero and elevation change and due to throat erosion, right? You know, because it's really tough to find a, uh, a stable node and and i think that's really going to come down to what bullet you choose probably more important than your bc is going to be what bullet is going to allow you to have fifteen thousandths of erosion or more twenty thousandths of erosion and maintain the same zero and an approximate speed you know um, so i did i did throat these i i had the reamer designed and made and um i made sure that it's a longer throat so with the bullet seated about 15, 20 thou off the next shoulder junction, so above it, um, yep. I have from the O jive of the bullet, I have about a 60 thou jump. 
so I'm starting there and I, f- I figure that'll erode away. And, um, yeah, I, the, the gunsmith I use, he's got uh, a throating reamer. So if we find that it, it does like to be jumped farther away, like the hybrids typically can do, like you're saying, I, I found on four different hybrid bullets, um, 80 thou was where they all like to jump. So that's kind of where I was basing this on was 60 to 80 to 120 thou. But uh, yeah, we'll we'll test it and see if I can find a good long throat jump. And then uh, hopefully that lowers the pressure. Hopefully that uh, improves the consistency for throat erosion across many numbers of rounds. And um, yeah, running it at a little slower velocity, but still running a slower powder as well. Yeah, all these things add up and, and pulse. Yep. Yeah. That 80 to well, so that that some of those really great groups that I've shot in my time was at that 80,000s jump, 82,000s jump, right? Uh, but that 80 to that 120 is probably exactly where I would be. You know, I I tried at 80, but really hope yeah. it worked about 120. <laughs> you know. So you know, and so that, I that, tried that it with window. the. I tried it with the Burger OTMs, the 130s. Um, I tried it with the Burger 105s. Um, I tried it with the uh, the 184s and the 180 uh, 7 mil bullets. Um, I tried it with the uh, 308, what is it, the 175 OTMs. And they're all right there between, I think, I think it was the... 105s liked 60 or 70, so they were a little shorter jump. But all the others were happy at like 80, and then the 308, the 175s were happy at 120. And I haven't yeah, had more. enough time. They're happy at an inch too, right? I was gonna say <laughs> yeah. I haven't tried them longer. I haven't had time to try them longer. But I, yeah. what I'm trying to do though is I'm trying to figure out some reloading processes that I can implement and make things make brass prep quick and easy and reload on a Dillon. So I'd like to have the funnel on the Dillon and just do two powder machines and, you know, pull from this one, pull from that one, you know, pull the handle, yep. pull, pull the handle. So the I don't Saturday know. Dillon press method, right? Yes. <laughs> That's a pretty <laughs> we'll legit see. setup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, I originally was going to mount a Prometheus on the wall and buy one of those new Dillon CP 2000s, right? The case processor. Yeah. And do a funnel right on it where I could dump right into, um, and I and it's on my list to do. I just haven't uh, decided to relinquish enough control to put my rock chucker down. Right. <laughs> so about the powder machines, um, I've done some extensive testing, and I promise everybody out there that's listening. I'm going to come out with the results eventually, but um, I've tested several different powder machines like the uh, uh, the auto trickler, auto throw combo, um, the uh, Prometheus, the um, Hornaday, um, both their new and old, or not, not sorry, not Hornaday, RCBS, uh, new and old powder throws. And also there's a guy out of, um gosh his name's um jimmy todd and he he has a machine he calls it the delta apm automatic powder machine but um his machine has been the most 
to the kernel amazing. Like he's got uh, a bulk throw and then the Prometheus single kernel thrower. And I've been trying to work with him, kind of improve the programming of it, but it actually does a better job than the auto trickler auto throw combination. And, uh, you know, that, that combo in, in all honesty, I use that more than anything, but if you have like a single cartridge that you're going to reload, it actually does better than the Prometheus, this, this APM automatic powder machine. Um, it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it, it is actually better. And, uh, I know that, um, Adam from auto trickler is coming out with a new auto trickler auto throw. So I'm, I'm hoping to get on the list and I'll get one of those and I'll test it. And maybe by that time I can compile all these results, but, but basically I'm trying to do a test where I'm loading up like a hundred rounds and I'm writing down how many kernels each powder throw is off by. And so I'll have an SD of, of kernels and I'll have the time it takes for each one of those. And, kind of give everybody all the data and let you make your own decision. And I mean, honestly, I, I like the, the auto trickler auto throw because I can set up any cartridge I'm going to reload for within minutes, right? It's yep. dead easy. But then if I want, like I'm going to reload on a Dylan and I'm going to reload for consistency, let's say I come up with this magical combination. I would want that machine, that APM from Jimmy Todd to, to, to the kernel every time because I don't have to look at it. I put my my uh, powder cup on the scale and I do something else. I come back to it and I don't have to worry. It is literally to the kernel. Whereas that auto throw, I've seen it go over as much as half a grain. I've seen it go under as much as half a grain. And I'm like, eh. I have to watch that number on the scale. And I have to pay attention. But oh, this yeah. Other one, yeah. This other one, I don't. I it's it's on every single time. It's it's pretty amazing. So I used two auto tricklers, and I gosh, I used those before anybody used them. Before they really, I used A and D scale, and then I used the A and D scale with two charge masters back in the day. And then Adam come out with his auto trickler, and then I used you know uh, a a manual thrower, a Harold's thrower, throwing onto it, and then followed by the auto trickler. And I really used that for a long time, and I just recently went to two auto tricklers to try and make life easier with auto throws. Uh, and really, once I got the shimming of that, how much my initial drop was and the angle of the the, the uh, trickler, that was really, uh, gosh, I mean, I'm changing maybe 10 out of 100, you know, that's not where I want them to be. I'm dumping them back yeah. or you know, yeah, maybe exactly. tweezer and one or two out, you know, but, uh, I've been, I've been really thinking about buying two Prometheuses and I don't want to spend the money on them. Uh, I, but I'm how much you. are these APMs look at? Cause I've not heard of that. So, um, without a scale, it's a little over a thousand. I want to say it's 1200. And what scale does it use? It's the same as the the auto trickler auto throw. You can use the FX 120i. Um, oh. I have the upgraded version of that scale. So the 120i is good to 0.00 kernels or sorry 0.00 grains, and it's plus or minus 
0.00 or 0 0.02 plus or minus. Um, the one I have is the AZ, which stands for autos or automatic zero. And then um, it's like the 150 and it's good to 0 0.002 plus or minus grains of powder. Well, so living in Colorado, I, you probably took that out of a marijuana dispensary. <laughs> <laughs> I bought it when I was in California, so no. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I, as an engineer, I overdo things. And when I was starting to get into reloading and looking at a digital scale, engineering degrees and you know scientific methods always tell you that the accuracy of your measurement device needs to be one uh, factor better than what you're trying to achieve for accuracy. Of, of what it is you're measuring. So I was like, well, I want to be to the 10th of a grain of powder accurate. I need to be able to measure to the thousandth of, or hundredth of a grain of, of powder. So <laughs> I called up the, the um, company that sells scales and told him what I was doing. He's like, oh, you sound like a bench rest shooter. You need this machine. It's like, okay. But I can literally take two kernels of Varget and put them on and see which one's heavier. <laughs> okay. It's it's stupid accurate. So when I say I'm measuring the accuracy of these scales to the kernel, I mean it. it it's I can tell yeah. you if it's a kernel high or a kernel low. So <laughs> Okay. Awesome. Well, I know I went through and ran different uh, my best friend that I fished with for 30 years, his son runs those scales that's what he does he fixes scales for used to be now it's apple valley scales but it used to be uh whatever the big scale company I of the world was that's where i bought it from okay and you know he does all these dispensary scales and all this stuff mm -hmm. and uh initially he's like this is the one to buy which was the 120s but that was probably, and then he gave me, he's gave me two other ones. I got two other scales that are really a better result, but I don't think they're made by A&D. I think uh, one might be a Satorius, yeah. but it's a different, totally different grade. And I don't know what the name of the other one is, yeah. uh, but it, it, it goes and it goes, I mean, it's, yeah, I think you can weigh a grain of salt on the Dagon thing. Let me, uh, let me look on the number real quick. Hold on. All right, I'm excited. It's an A and D HR dash one fifty AZ. Okay, that sounds like uh so that takes your uh Delta APM powder machine and doubles the price of it. <laughs> okay. Well with that AP the at APM machine will work with that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have it hooked up to to one of my scales. So. so how long does it take to throw? Do I need two of them? That's the next uh, question. Do you want me to go get my paper and give you the numbers? Hell yes! <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. I haven't looked at these results in quite a while. It's it's been other projects have taken over. But I'm, um, I'm an engineer, so I, I think the same way you do. So uh, my well, so typically the A and D I found drops best at three tenths of a grain shy. 
of your target, right? If you yeah. drop to that point, that's the fastest way to accomplish uh, your goal. Oh boy, let's see. It's a pretty small print. It's been a while since I looked at it. We, Wait a we you might need have glasses. Yeah, I do. I'm getting old. Something about I keep turning mine 40, right man. here. I yeah. didn't need it, man. Until I need until I, I used binoculars to spot, and then I corrected <laughs> my vision for like enough matches, and now I can't see a thing. Um, where's time? We might have to edit this down in the uh, podcast so that I can. Uh, save the listeners from an extra five minutes of me just staring at a piece of paper. Um, I want to say the average time for the Delta APM. 21 seconds. And the average time for the auto throw auto trickler was like 16 seconds. All I mean, right. And then really the comparable. Prometheus was about the same too, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. The Prometheus yeah. was right in there as well. The um, the difference here was the trust that I could put into the Delta APM. Being able okay. to throw that cup on there and not worry about it and not have to pick kernels. I'm okay with two, three kernels, high or low. I'm not okay yeah. with two, three tenths, high or low. <laughs> you know? And, wow. Yeah. So it, it, and and I have SDs of the powder charges written down. Yeah. I'll I'll summarize them in my report later. But there is a significant difference between a delta APM and and a auto throw. Okay. But we'll see. We'll see what this new auto throw does. You know, I, I want to get one of them. He's got this barrel tumbler, and it's integrated with the the little tube tumbler and two machines on top of your little. Um, clear plexiglass plate above your yeah. scale it looks pretty cool i mean it's it's all integrated simplified one device we'll looks see if like that's a match master <laughs> yeah, yeah so i have a um a match master as well that's the new one so i've um, got one in the shop here that i use while i'm while i've got the machine running the cycle if i'm gonna go do some load tests or whatever it loads pretty daggone good. Once yeah. I put the once I went to the Bluetooth and I set up all my profiles where I changed the timing in it, that thing's uh, wicked fast and really accurate. But if you go out of the box, it's kind of you know. But whenever you go into with the Bluetooth program and you change your target for each individual step and how fast, and you can fine tune that sucker where. It's really accurate for what it is. <laughs> I mean, so, so send me those settings because I I do have one. Um, Robert Brantley lent me his his Matchmaster, and um, it's on the list of scales to to run tests on and come out with a, a comparison of. So I know you shoot a six five forty seven. I isn't it kind of selective as the settings as far as like if you're running Vargate or H forty three fifty. It really or, is. Yeah. Yeah. It's you choose that. And that's so I loaded my hunting rifle for the Hunter series in there because I'm like, well, hell, it's a 12 pound rifle. I'm not going to shoot it good enough to matter, you know? Uh, right. Well, and then the damn thing just, it worked really well. And I started checking all my loads on my AD and I'm like, they're pretty good. But it, it kept overshooting and I, I wasn't real happy out of the box, right? I tried 
Yeah. It said I should be in powder setting two versus powder setting one. And I changed each one and it would take too long. And I was like, eh, I, I, this just isn't the thing for me. It's kind of like a charge master. It's good enough mm -hmm. if you got nothing else, but for the price I can buy an A and D. Well, then my a buddy that I build guns for, he stopped by and he's like, oh, we haven't downloaded the app. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm just going to hit enter. He's like, oh, you got to put the app in there. I'm like, I don't really care about telling it on my phone what to do. He's like, no, no, no. So you can change all the parameters. And I'm like, well, go ahead and do it for me. So it took him about, it took him a little long, 15, 20 minutes to set that up, right? It was probably a little longer than it should have been for the market that that thing's hitting. But as soon as he put it in, he's like, well, here, I'll download my profile in there for BR. And I went, whoop. And I mean, it was, it was faster than my A&D. And I'm like, whoa. And it was, it was on, right? Yeah. And I'm like, huh. And I loaded about, I did about 20 drops that way. And then he put in his Psalm load in there. And then I started with that for my 6547. And then I tuned it from there with 4350 and uh uh i played with it a little bit and it really is has not been floating around a whole lot it, it has been it's not like a charge master and it went pretty daggone fast once yeah uh, you get the settings once you fine-tune the settings to what your powder and where you have it sitting on the bench you know, the angle you got, the tube and everything else, once you kind of figure that out, it got pretty happy. And oh. uh, I was uh, I was surprised. I mean, I still, I don't trust it because I didn't trust the old charge masters. You know what I mean? Because they would be off. If yeah. you drop short and trickled to the number, they were on point. But if they, whatever it said, wasn't necessarily anywhere close to where it was, right? <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. because I used to always check them on A&D. And the Matchmaster, I mean, it was, it was pretty much on point for the most part. And I doubt with the efficiency of the cartridges we shoot today that somebody could shoot the difference. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was. Well, that, uh, that's maybe I can talk to you about that. So that was one of the, the points of this powder scale testing I want to do is I want to take some cartridges that I know the variation in the powder charge and go shoot them and see hey you know i i i loaded to the kernel with with these 20 cases and then i reloaded them and let the powder machine vary the the charge weight and reshot them and i got this sd and compare like hey if your powder charge sd varies by umpteen percent how does that affect your velocity sd and you you got to know there's there's variances in affecting your sd from the cartridge but i'm trying to pin down what what is the effect of that powder charge sd to your velocity sd I, and i know I, we're loading to like velocity nodes you know pressure nodes where everything seems to be coming out the same and and i kind of thinking once you find that charge weight you could probably relax your your uh powder charge uh consistency a little bit and still see good good results i i so I've done a little bit of testing, not enough that I can say and write a paper on it, but I, I can say that we way overthink that shit. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, I will tell you the difference between 20 and 25,000, 20 and 25 PSI of neck tension. 
is a hell of a lot more than three kernels of powder. Right. You know, so, um, (laughs) (laughs) so realistically, you know, gosh, if with the efficiency of the cases that we're running now, right. In the, with the six, four, 47, six, five, 47, the Creedmoor, the, the BR, the Dasher, the, you know, really, I don't think it matters. I think we are, we are so crazy overthinking it, uh, that there's so many other bigger factors that come into play that it's that, that down to the kernel, like, you know, 29, four, two, four, three or four, four realistically is in the noise. So, so far down, um, that it doesn't come into play. Um, Yeah. And And so I'll I'll do the disclaimer. That's kind of what the reloading all day podcast and the website is all about We, you know, myself and Blake and, and Robert were, we're trying to get a consensus from shooters that have a fair amount of experience and we're trying to figure out what are the factors that a person should worry about whether you're reloading for elr f class prs just plinking you know there's going to be a different set of uh processes you're going to use to reload your ammo for each one of those disciplines and and you know some things are really big and you know, I I don't think people realize how important neck tension is to accuracy. It's a bigger factor than people give it credit for. Yes. But also, you know, your your seating depth is is hugely important. Right. A thousandths is huge in seating depth, right? Yeah. And now take it to the next step. So you want to know what the most important thing into all that shit? You know, you got your brass is how straight your chamber is, right? Yeah. Make no misunderstanding. A chamber that is cut concentric to the bore with the, you know, and I don't size the bottom third of my necks, you know, so I, I leave that to, to, I use an oversize. So it uh, wedges ramer. in the, in the chamber. So a little when it bit. goes in, it, it self centers, right? Yeah. Because I have, I don't run one and a half thousands. I run three or four thousands of clearance on my necks, right? So I don't have to turn necks and it don't matter, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and a little bit of dirt in there doesn't hurt anything in the environments we do, right? I mean, again, we're different in bench rest. We don't need to turn. We're not working in pristine, non-fouled conditions on every shot, right? We're working in, we need it to be the same accuracy for 300 rounds plus, okay? It's a totally different world. Um, But so I don't resize the base of that neck. Uh, I leave a small area of that. I do a slight preload on my shoulder where I have just a slight bit of tension on my lugs to make sure my lugs are the, the cartridge is nice and square against the bolt face and it's centered, centered because yeah. of that bottom tiny little bit of that neck that doesn't get resized, right? Because yep. once it's fired to that chamber, it's holding it. And now that bullet's perfectly in line with that bore and it's not smashing into the side and every I don't know, 400, 300 rounds, you're chasing your load because A, you're degrading the bullet, B, C, you're changing your pressure by plowing out the side of the bore. You're starting at perfectly in line, you know, and, and, and those. So really, I would say the quality of your barrel and your chamber really makes reloading crazy easy because you've got, yeah. if you've got proper firing pin fall and energy hitting it, striking a primer, 
right? And you have good neck tension and you have a reasonably close powder charge in a really straight chamber, that freaking gun is going to shoot damn good in every load, okay? It's going to shoot greater in some, but it's going to shoot good all the time. And if you take something that was turned on centers and, you know, that's the way they did stuff before they had the technology of today, right? And and stress in the blank, like, I would, I really feel like, uh, so I don't, I cut my chamber before I ever spin that barrel over 180 RPM, okay? I don't, that barrel, once everything's perfectly indicated to whatever it takes to be zero run out and actually indicated into that bore, uh, it never turns over 180 RPM until that chamber's complete, right? Because I don't want any of that stuff disrupting it. And that's why after every one, I can check it and it is to a zero absolute zero run out and still indicated you know to the when, tenth of a thou up in the when net you're indicating that chamber are you doing two point indication or are you doing i do three points so i do ogive uh-huh. on the cartridge i do half inch in front of that ogive quarter okay. inch to half inch right uh and then i do the base of the case where the back of the cartridge is going to finish right uh and well, the most wait, wait, important wait. Sorry, before you cut the chamber and you're indicating the barrel, two points or? No, I actually do two and then I check the third. Okay. Okay. Yeah, because once you cut, so, then you're doing the base of the chamber. So I, I use a long stem indicator, mm-hmm. right? So I can read top and bottom of the lens and I have it. And, and I really did a jaw system that allows me to, Dude, I can tighten that thing up at the right at the ogive where where I grab it. I can take a mallet and strike that sucker, and it ain't gonna move. But I can grab a hold of the other end of the barrel and do this, and there's no flex or stress in the blank. I can I can change it right to. So I build a ball and socket into my chuck. And that took me weeks to figure that out. But that was part of the system. Whenever I come up with my jaws, right. How am I going to hold that barrel where I can run a CNC however I want to, but no matter how fast I spin it or what I can do, it's not going to have stress in the blank that as it moves around will will change, right? So basically I built uh, a ball and socket joint, you know, that fits in there around the barrel and then I can articulate that thing all the way around from two points and and not flex that barrel at all, which uh, I think makes a difference, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I stress-free blanks. I'm not, you know. Again, it's in the noise. There's 75 ways to do shit, and it all works really good. So one way isn't better than another. Anybody who tells you that is full of shit or just trying to sell you <laughs> something. But you know, I mean. If you're doing everything to the best you can, well, you end up with a pretty damn good product, right? But that stress-free blank, and so I go in, I indicate at the ogive where the bullet's going to touch the land, and I indicate at the back where I start my chamber. So that way I know that everything's perfectly indicated. And then I reach farther forward, about a quarter or half inch, and make sure that that's all on the same plane, Okay. If that beyond where you're grabbing it, beyond the ogive, beyond where my ogive is, just that yeah. next little quarter to half inch 
to make sure that that bore isn't slightly bent there. Okay. Mm -hmm. If I'm seeing that where I've got point A, point B, and point C doesn't line up, then I'm a little worried and I may want to try a different place on, you know, I may want to try a half inch different on that barrel or something along that line because I want A, B, and C to be all on the same plane. The middle I cut with a boring bar and actually cut it to true chamber diameter, smaller, and then I go in with a floating reamer and top it off. It's a really long process, and man, it's an hours of writing in SolidWorks to build a freaking program <laughs> for every every reamer. But um, it it cuts it perfect every time, right? And it's the same every time. So if I get those three datums to line up, then I know when that bullet comes out, it's not coming out and kind of going in the lands. It's going straight down the middle of that hole. And if I've centered it up with, you know, reloading that brass, right, it, it's, it's pretty awesome, right? I mean, it, yeah. it, the results are almost always great. So, and it makes, if you have a good quality barrel with a really straight chamber and just a normal rest of everything else on the gun done right, you know, uh, what, how you reload is really, really, really easy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and if you have a gun that goes 300 rounds and you can't figure out why you're chasing loads every two, 300 rounds all the way from there, well, it's probably because of one of those factors, right? You know, uh, and more often than not, you're chasing another problem, not necessarily you're reloading because. Um, well, I, I, let me let me step back a, a moment here. When we say the reloading process is really easy, I, I think there's some pieces of equipment that really make that possible. One yes. is those Wilson dies. Yes. Two is annealing every time. I and I think tumbling in walnut helps. Um, mm -hmm. You know, yep. and there's some other things that that are you know, I like a, a resizing die that bottoms out on the shell plate holder, um, and you can buy the RCBS competition shell, shell plate holders with different varying heights. So that you bottom out no matter what die you're using, like Hornaday dies or RCBS dies. And that seems to really improve the consistency of my shoulder bone. I've I've been a, a huge proponent of dies that have a, a bushing that separate at the shoulder body ring rather than the neck shoulder ring. And that just makes that resizing so much cleaner i don't get um it just i don't know maybe it's just aesthetics but i think it it resizes better um but i do i have had warner tool company go in and and make that radius at the next shoulder on the die a bigger radius and i'm getting exactly what you said where it's self-centering mm -hmm. as it's chambered you know and and i disassemble my bolt and i will resize uh, cases until I get just a little bit of touch when I'm closing the bolt, and yep. that's bolt my handle resizing. falls level, just a slight amount of finger pressure to 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 do it, and that's how I do my shoulder bump, and that's how I teach it to be done. Right? I'm like, <laughs> hey, here here here's how you do it. It's not one and a half thousandths. It's not three right. thousandths. It's not a half a thousandths. What it is is just just resizing everything enough. To where you have just very ever so slight consistent pressure uh, yeah. with your finger to close 
because then you've you've taken all the slop up in the system all your firing pin energy is now being completely transferred into that primer which yep. goes back to the proper dude fire, firing pin energy is huge right i mean all those world records were shot with three actions back in the day and why was that because they all had the exact same firing pin, fire control right okay. it come down to that fire control 250 thousandths of firing pin fall 54 58 thousandths of firing pin protrusion you know 26 pound spring and 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 a, and a and a firing pin that weighed x amount right to apply this amount of energy to get consistent ignition which is what all those br4s and 450s and you know all those primers out there were designed for um and, uh, you know, like a lot of those records were shot with 450 primers when you go back and you're like, oh, everybody's got to have 450s. Well, the reason was because they ran the damn things up in the lands. But a lot of the guys running yeah. jump, when you're doing those tests, that hotter primer, the BR4, can sometimes do some really great things. The reason those records were all shot one way is because they shot different than we do. They yeah. shot on clean bores. They shoot with <laughs> very consistent regimented we're shooting through dirty shit. We're picking up off the range and we're jumping bullets and got all this extra neck clearance. And, you know, we're, we're it's two different worlds. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I learned my reloading processes from my dad, who was a bench rest shooter. And so, you know, he taught me how he did things and he was adamant. I got to shoot a flat base bullet. I was like, uh, no, that's not oh, what yeah. these guys are shooting. I mean, a flat base bullet might be more accurate to 100, 200, 300 yards. 300, yep. But past that, there's something about that cone of fire and a, a high BC bullet's going to stay a tighter cone of fire for longer distance than a flat base bullet will, especially when given variable uh, environmental conditions like wind or just not knowing what the wind is doing, right? So, right. And then... So I, my first rifle was a, a seven rem mag because I thought I was going to blow everybody away with a high BC bullet going fast. You need that, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I took my dad out uh, shooting after I had that gun built and I was like, all right, we got a milk jug at a mile. Let's see who can hit it. And uh, he was just flabbergasted. Like I, I hit it in like eight shots and he actually didn't hit it, but he was like, I cannot believe how good these this rifle shoots at that distance you know he was just amazed that as a bench rest shooter he was amazed it's like well it's you know there's a paradigm shift here you, you got to think about things different we have different powders we have different bullets we have you know more consistent brass different manufacturing processes i mean it he's like wow it's completely different world <laughs> It is, but so in turn, you go back to 100, 200-yard bench rest or 300-yard bench rest, and you throw a little flat-bottom bullet in the PPC or BR, uh, and I don't give a shit, you know, and, and there's no such thing as checking your speed, right? I mean, we're talking SDs of 30, and them damn <laughs> things are shooting in the zeros, right? You know, I mean, it is, it's more about barrel timing with them than it is yeah. anything else. And uh, velocity really doesn't come into play. Uh, it's not the biggest factor. And yeah. oh my gosh, do those things shoot like you can't get your match rifle to shoot half as good as they do, right? And you have an SD of zero. Like I will tell you, never have I had my rifle be its most accurate at an SD of under two. Okay. 
My rifles are Less always accurate? their most accurate oh, most at threes, fours, SDs at three, four, and five, right? Every time. The SD is a zero. I can, I've run into horizontal nodes where I have a half inch of vertical at a thousand and I have 21 inches of horizontal, right? <laughs> and it all comes down to seating depth. And what that tells me when I see that is change my seating depth, right? You know, find a different seating depth because you huh. can, you can force that in. And that, that's, I can show you target after target. I've got every target I've ever shot for the last three years. I have downloaded and filed and categorized and so forth. Uh, so I also, I mean, so an F class lowest vertical is ideal, but you want to be the lowest vertical without being in a vertical, without a horizontal node, right? You do not want to be in a horizontal node and, and those horizontal nodes will kill you probably more than anything because you can find it, those really low SDs with the wind, right? Oh yeah. And I mean, it's, I'm talking a zero wind condition, right? You know, a non-variable wind. And you can run like inch and a half, two inches of vertical, right? At a thousand, which is pretty insane, right? Right. But you can run into nodes at the right seating depth by forcing that, that can run you 20 inches of horizontal, 18, 20 inches, right? And, and so that's one thing you got to be careful when you do that velocity, you know, the Satterley test and you run up and you shoot lowest velocity and you're like oh well there it is and okay i shoot in a windy area like colorado and i'm like oh well i'm just going to shoot my lowest horizontal well that's great but occasionally uh, you can get yourself in a really bad situation and so on the e-target where i shoot it's real obvious to see that because when i'm in that horizontal node the bullet goes one two three four five right it goes wider as i shoot huh. uh and uh, versus a wind condition where it'll go one, two, three, four, five, right? right? And you can track that along, and I can see that with the E-target because I've got each individual shot, and you can see that wind move that out versus the – if I have a low horizontal that's doing this, <laughs> oh, shit, you know. Run away. <laughs> uh, I'm going to shoot that another day, and I'm probably going to change my seating depth to 20 thousandths and start somewhere else, you know, uh, because – Man, you will burn edges at targets, and you can't figure out what the hell is wrong. And 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 uh, so when I looked at seating depth, and when I did all my early on big jump numbers and all that stuff, I not only looked at lowest vertical, I also looked at the horizontal factor as well. Right, right. and I, I think that's overlooked sometimes. Uh, that you know there are. You know, and you can tell by the timing of each bullet, there's there's nasty horizontal nodes that are as bad as nasty vertical nodes. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're less often to run across, but almost always those are going to be SDs of zero or one when you run into <laughs> one of those real nasty ones. And uh, not every time, right? But every once in a while, and that's like, ooh, shoot that again tomorrow or later that day and see whether that it repeats you know yeah. because that could that can get you in a uh in a, an ohex scenario you know a a, so. uh, a false positive you you think it's doing really good but it's got a wide horizontal oh yeah and it'll be double the norm two or three times than the normal huh. it's uh and what it is you've set yourself up uh you know when you did your seating depth test you know every action has a reaction so boom 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 and then it'll be one of these where you have your maximum barrel movement and it's a true horizontal movement. 
And, you know, and that, and that can be huge and you're right in the middle of that. And that's not where you want any part of, right. Yeah. You're looking for, you know, the one, two, three, four, the little triangle in your seating depth test. So, so not that. When, when I was um, doing some load development with the 308, I had a, had an F class guy kind of looking over my shoulder. He's like, man, what are you doing over there? You're shooting a lot of groups. And, you know, I was telling him what I was doing and, he explained that barrel harmonic where it's always kind of an oval shape. And I had happened to shoot like a perfect low development scenario where he could point this out to me. I didn't change my, my scope zero. I was shooting five shot groups and I shot a wide range of powder charges. And he showed me, he's like, this group is high and tight. And then it, it starts to string out and it, and you know, this group is stringing out and then this group yep. started tightening up and then there's a tight group at the bottom and then it started stringing out and you know, yep. another group, another group, and then it tightened up at the top again. And he's like, you're making an oval. He's like, there's what you want is either the top up, or the bottom. And then your triangle and then your horizontal, then your triangle. And then there's the other side of your oval, which is you're coming to vertical down. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And, and uh, so, yeah, I, I was like, he's, he told me he does all this testing at 600 yards and it becomes much more apparent. And mm -hmm. he, he commended me for doing it at a hundred yards and being able to see it. But you know, <laughs> it was, it was kind of eye opening. And since doing that, I noticed that those top and bottom tighter groups in, in a, in that oval also seem to correlate with the lower SDs. And I don't yes. know why it, it's, yeah, it's very odd but there's some barrel pressure harmonic thing going on that everything just likes to group at at some velocity pm pure magic is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> and then magic <laughs> well you know so i do my seating depth test with one round at a thousand yards every five thousands and it repeats whether i shoot five it repeats whether I shoot uh, any load I shoot. I mean, I'll general, I used to shoot two or three random loads, a load that's in the number, and I just lay down. And of course, where I shoot, I've got pretty controlled wind environment, right? I shoot on an F-class range that's all private, and it's the wind typically doesn't tail down it, and it kind of goes over. So it's not very puffy at all. Uh -huh. Um so, I mean, I can almost always, even in big wind days, shoot really good groups because the big wind, typically the wind's up and it's not down unless it's blowing up or down, you know, unless I'm shooting into a headwind or tailwind, it's about the only time it's a problem. But I shoot, I used to shoot three shots and I used to shoot all, I lay down and I'll load 14, 15 rounds of a charge that I know is somewhere in the realm of safe and reasonable. And I'll just shoot one round every 5,000, starting at 15,000, because always that first round will skew the number, right? That first shot doesn't yeah. let the barrel do its normal harmonics, right? Yeah. And then I shoot it, and then I watch the harmonics, and every action has an equal reaction. And you just watch it go around, and then you'll find the small spots, and then you'll find the big ones again, and then you'll find those big horizontal ones. <laughs> and... And then I've gone through and broken each of those down to prove that that's actually what you find is all those horizontal nodes and vertical nodes. And, every, and I can pretty much look at it and say, oh, that's going to be a vertical. That's 
ish, right? I yeah. mean, it's it's ish. And I'll generally look and 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 I had a 21 shot method where I'd take and I'd shoot a 12 shot seating depth test, and then I would do the velocity test from my choice of seating depth. And I actually charted them out. You know, you take the velocity test and you put a chart and you look for the the plateaus and all that. Well, I charted the same thing out with the seating depth. And then I could overlap them and say, this seating depth at this velocity and this seating depth at this velocity. And I'd shoot three groups from those two tw those 21 shots. And one of them would almost always hit as a perfect deal. What I haven't huh. figured out is how to transfer that on the paper yet. So, I mean, it's, I know how to do intuitive it. intuitive right now. It, it, it is because I've done it so many times and I can see it. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. This chart lines up here. So here's my seating depth. Here's my velocity. And then here's these two angles. So let's put them right here. Yep, this one and this one. These three right here. And I'll shoot those three seating depths at those three powder charges. And I mean, I find the happy place for that barrel. And the best part about it is when that barrel erodes, so let's say at that six to 900 rounds and I decide I need to change something, I can pick that second choice that I had the first time and it almost always lines up. So huh. that barrel has that same attitude for the life of that barrel. Uh, it, it's, I've seen it, I've documented it over and over and over and over. And when I haven't figured out, I decided to put it on to, to write a book and say, here's how you do it. Right. I right. haven't, I haven't found an easy way to relate that to everybody without me just looking at it and say, well, there it is. You know what I mean? Because I've, yeah. I've tried to break it down and, and I just haven't yet, but I will someday. So uh, I've, and I've been I've doing written, that for a while. I've, I've written a, uh, a reloading process and, and I teach some, some guys my reloading process, but it's, it's, cons it's, uh, centered around velocity and, and finding the nodes and, you know, you, you kind of find a rough estimate for seating depth and you find your powder charge and then you go back and you fine tune the seating depth. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, <laughs> I'd love to hear it when you find out the uh, secret sauce. <laughs> right. Well, that's the best way. What you're saying is the best way. Find your seating depth, go find a powder node and then go back and retune that seating depth to that. Right. Um, but it's essentially works out to be the same way. Just you don't need to shoot three shots every time to find a seating depth test. If you put it far enough out at distance and can in consistent conditions, it becomes blatantly apparent. You know what I mean? I, I think um, that's one of the advantages you have, though, is, I mean, not only the range and the consistency of the range, but also, I mean, you've refined your reloading process um, to a consistent enough level and you're confident in what you're doing that you're able to narrow down a single variable and just recognize what what the changes and how they're affecting that variable and knowing okay, I have confidence in choosing that. And I, I think as a new reloader, I mean, it's, it's, you know, you're dealing with equipment choices and uh, component choices. And you, you, I mean, we've been at this long enough. We know the components we want to use. We know uh, the equipment that we have and how it works and how to, we've refined our, our reloading process to that level. We say it's easy, but I, I think it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of uh, daunting to new reloaders to get to that level, and I think um, 
a question for you. I mean, um, how did you get into reloading? Uh, gosh, I started reloading when I was shot pistols as a kid. Well, uh, started reloading when I shot shotgun because I couldn't afford to, to do it. And when I shot pistols, I shot bullseye competition, and it was the cheapest way to, to get ammo because you couldn't always go to Walmart and buy it, right? You know, um, and then uh, then I shot a lot of long-range handgun stuff for years, and that was the only way I could get the accuracy. Um, and then started long-range hunting, and that was the only way I could get a rifle that would shoot beyond 300 yards and shoot small stuff, right? You know, um, so basically my dad... Did you dad, teach you? Your dad? Uh, you know, I, my dad taught me to reload. He was not a very good reloader. Right. Um, you know, I still use the same rock chucker that I've had since I was 15 years old. Right. I mean, um, that's kind of awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's been well taken care of and lubed and loved and everything else. Right. Um, and uh, it really doesn't have any play or anything along that line in it. And it's just uh, it's it's just a happy little it's a it's a happy, happy critter. Right. Um <laughs> But, uh, um, so I just, I did it out of necessity early on. Right. And I used to go buy 20 different bullets and, you know, and 20 different kinds of powder and try and figure out how to make a gun shoot better. Uh, and I, and I really geeked out on that a little bit. Uh, but then once I got into this game, uh, you know, I thought the only way you could shoot stuff far away is to have something that would shoot really small groups, yeah. you know? And, uh, and I got into it and, and, you know, with my brain has an engineering background and I just overanalyze everything. Um, and I sometimes have to put myself in check on that. Right. Because it's a lot of it really doesn't matter and it's bullshit, but I just, I just, I, I think the only way you can possibly do this is to, you know, have, have these numbers all in line because you know that's the difference well it really isn't but you know um but you've so you've gone through the exercises and you've proven it to yourself what matters and right. what doesn't yeah well that's it so i got when i got into this game i had a really sharp guy who had been in this game a while kind of take me under his wing Dave O, and he was one of the original civilian shooters you know and uh and he he kind of showed me how he reloads in his process, which was leaps and bounds above everybody else, you know. And he had one of the first A and D scales before anybody else, right? You know, and uh, and he's like, oh, you got to have one of these. Um, and then the guy that taught him was a really good F class shooter that was. Uh, uh, engineer at Timken, meteorologist, really sharp guy, broke everything down. And they didn't have the scales we did, right? But he showed us all the processes or showed me all the processes that they went by. And then uh, as I added technology to that, right, then I just kept refining it uh, as I had problems, right. As the gun wouldn't do what it would do. And I would change calibers and I need to find a way to do it. And, and, uh, part of it was because I, I didn't have guns that were built properly. Right. And I didn't know that. And so I kept Hammer trying to find better barrel. ways to shoot it. Um, 
No, that, that's was... what I tell people. I tell people the the number one thing you you want an accurate shooting gun, you go change to a custom barrel. You get rid of the hammer forge and go to a custom barrel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I can't stress enough about a straight chamber. I mean. You know, it used to be, so here's the deal. So when I first got into this, I, I, I dealt with some pretty serious bench rest guys. And, uh, you know, they, they buy seven or eight, nine, ten barrels to find a good one, right? Well, what I've found since I've gotten farther in this, well, they more, in my opinion, went through four or five barrels to find one that had a perfectly straight chamber, Right. You know, that was concentric to the bore and, and stress-free and all that stuff. And then went through the other two barrels to find out which one was was the better shooter, right? right. Which one maybe had a little choke lapped into it or whatever, you know, whenever they build it. But, you know, which one was just that next little cut above? I can say that, you know, I use Hawk Hill barrels for the most part or Kriegers. But, you know, I, I typically go Hawk Hill because I know one guy has lapped damn near every barrel has left that shop for the last eight years. Okay. That one person, his quality control is pretty high, right? So by that standard, I'm not dealing with five different people judging what the best is. Okay. He, his go, no go is pretty damn on point. And he is the only guy that rifles them. And he is the only guy that laps everyone that comes out of there. Uh, so from that, I know that the quality is going to likely be at a really high standard, uh, and not be every fourth guy standard. Okay. You know, uh, yeah. so, and, and I found that to be the case and, you know, whenever they could buy metal cheaper, they bought the metal that worked, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they, they never cut any corners and they just, they don't make a lot of barrels. They make all the barrels they can, and that's all they're ever going to make. They're not going to hire somebody else to lap barrels. They're going to make their X number of barrels a year. Uh, but I can say that any of the quality barrels, Krieger, Hawk Hill, that I've done and put on my personal rifle, they've all achieved that level of accuracy that I have, which some people would say would be really high. And for me, it's like, this is the baseline, right? This is what that rifle should be able to do. Sub and five inches at a thousand. Sub five inch square. Okay, square. I will okay. allow it to go to a square as opposed to, you know, five inches of vertical, five inches of width. If it's wind and I see it trending across, I'll let that, that width go as I see one, two, three, four, five. Sure. You know, I mean, but but that five inch block, you know, no wind condition, shot perfect time, just five shots, not holding for wind, not waiting for any flag, just lay down and shoot five, a square of five inches. And typically evenly distributed is what I look for. And every freaking rifle I've had has been able to do that uh, over 20, 30 barrels, right? You know, 15. I may have had one in there that was 0.6s or whatever. Uh, and uh, on occasion or either side wouldn't stay quite as, as tight, a, tight a load. But, you know, when it's, when it's set up perfect and ready to go to the match, that's what my goal is. Um, barring a 20 mile an hour wind or something, you know, I mean, it yeah. just normal conditions. It should be able to do that. If it's five and a quarter inches, I'm not going to whine a whole lot, but damn near all those have done that. And I will tell you before then, um, uh, so I think a quality barrel with a really straight chamber 
should be able to do that damn near every time if the rest of the rifle's in reasonable shape and, and your reloading is up to par, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so, and beforehand, God, it'd be one out of every 10 barrels would do that for me. And I think that's where it used to be. Oh, I finally got a good barrel. I think if you're buying a really good barrel, they're all pretty freaking good. It's more about how they're cut. Is there, you know, is there enough radius before the tendon? You know, what, what kind, you know, just where, where's yeah. your clearance? You know, just all the little, the little pieces and how that gun's put together probably matter a little more, you know, to, to that. But if you're dealing with medium barrels uh, or mid-tier barrels, well, then uh, you're probably going to get six out of 10 that's going to do that and four that's going to be pretty damn good you know what i mean mm-hmm. and then as you get to other you know good enough right good enough to win any match in the country as far as prs goes but maybe not good enough to go win national level national level f-class matches right or you know take it to that next level uh or long range bench rest you know um yeah. but Anyway, and then as you go down to next level barrels and you start going to the, you know, the not cut rifle barrels and and little less quality or little less quality control, well, then maybe it comes down to you got a good barrel or a bad barrel. But, man, okay. a good, decent barrel just always seems to shoot if it's mm-hmm. cut right. And, and you know, you, you have the right clearance in your reamers and, you know, you're you have consistent necks and, you know, neck thickness, neck tension, whatever, you know, I mean, if all the factors being equal, man, good barrel shoots pretty damn good all the time. <laughs> what, uh, what cartridges have you reloaded? Just about everything. Um, I mean, you know, every pistol cartridge there is, as far as big cartridges, I go, all the BR variants, BRA, BRX, BRDX, BR, uh, then on up into the 647. I ran the 647 for a number of years. That cartridge got a bad rap, but uh, realistically, it was uh, it was mostly because most of the reamers out there didn't have enough neck clearance in them. We took 6.5 brass, necked it down. Nobody turned necks. You yep. turn next on that brass, or if you had, if they made a, if Lapua made a six by forty-seven piece of brass that wasn't a six-five neck down, there would be no room in this world for a GT. That's the best brass ever made, and and I mean it, it, it just it, it, that cartridge is not finicky, right? It's finicky if you try and run a different powder or take it beyond where it should. If you run it where it's happy. It's happy. That's a fantastic cartridge, right? Crazy efficient. Now, it does benefit from having a little bigger neck, like 273, 274, 275 neck, right? Or turning necks and making sure, you know, that that you know how, how they were necked down kind of comes into play on that, right? Because it comes down to the neck tension and the amount of release and so forth. But uh, that cartridge is fantastic. Um, 6547. Most accurate six five in the world, right? I mean, it's just there. There's there's nothing. It's just so inherently accurate. It's 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 you know crazy hard to load, not to load well, right? If you run Varget, you run thirty six eight to thirty seven two of Varget. You can set that thing somewhere between twenty and thirty thousandths off the lands, and it is going to shoot really, really, really good. 
And if you want to run jump, well, then you can run jump and it's going to shoot really, really good. I mean, it's, and you'll never touch that load for the life of that barrel. You know what I mean? It's, they're crazy. Let, crazy. let me yeah. pause you real quick. What about uh, 6547 with H4350? So uh, crazy so, accurate. It's awesome, but you generally don't run the lower SDs. You got a little different recoil impulse. Yeah. Uh, I run the 4350 in mine because I have, I want to save all my Varget right now. <laughs> but, you know, 4350 is a more abrasive powder. It's going to wear on the barrel a little more. The Varget's going to last half again as long. So, you know, I'm I'm hearing uh, the reverse, and I've I've actually I shot out a barrel with Varget H4350 or sorry with uh, 130s, and I've got all the throat erosion data and how long it lasted, and now I'm shooting a barrel with H4350, but everything else the same. I'm gonna see how long it lasts, and the thought there is that it's a slower powder, lower peak pressure yada yada it's supposed to have less throat erosion so i'm kind of surprised so to hear you say the reverse slower powder is correct and typically with a slower powder you're going to find less throat erosion um 4350 for some reason because i think the amount of soot and versus what's left over afterwards is becomes a very abrasive powder okay uh and my experience is anything runs on Varget runs a lot longer than anything running on 4895 or 4350. Okay. Um, unless you're dropping your pressures way off, but let's say you're running no, both no. at you know, 60,000 PSI. You know, I'm I mean, shooting uh, the 130 at 2990. What? <laughs> 42, 42 grains of powder i gotta ask why <laughs> um because it's super consistent <laughs> it shoots great okay. have so, you ever shot a 140 at 2780 <laughs> <laughs> i'm meeting power I mean, factor <laughs> that's the other that's that's my nrl hunter cartridges uh the 130s doing 2990 uh, well that's a different story yeah 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 uh <laughs> no i mean uh so i i did shoot the 140s but i i just thought that the 130s were doing better for me at that higher velocity but yeah. anyways the 130s so, are a good bullet i shot twenty thousand of them or thirty thousand of them over time because i used to shoot that 6555 swede actually improved yeah right or uh i think it's 35 degree improved but anyway that was uh the gwi was it that was the first cartridge i started with that thing was you know, I'd run those 130s at 3150, and I run them up to 32, and run 140s at 3100, and it was crazy easy and accurate to shoot. Uh, great brass. It was like $60 a hundred. It just, it was cheapest brass you could buy right from Lapua, and yeah. the only downside is you had to open up your bolt face to 289 because, uh, you know, the brass was Instead of 280 or 285 or? Like it's yeah, a, it's so just slightly bigger, right? Yep, 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 yep. But uh, man, that was a crazy good cartridge. Um, huh. So that was one I put a lot of time in. Three hundred eight, hell's a time in it. Uh, I went through the Creedmoors. Uh, I think they're excellent for what they are. Um, you know, if someone run factory ammo, I build a ton of six Creeds and six five yeah. Creeds. 
right? But if you have your choice in a 6.5 Creed and a 6.547, a 6.547 all day long, you got the best brass made on the planet. Uh, if you're a hand loader, right? If you're right. if you're buying out of the box, dude, you just take a Sammy Spec 6.5 Creed mortar and the thing's going to shoot half MOA and very few people are going to outshoot it, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's, nobody's molested the reamer prints or anything else. And, and, you know, you look at that, that's running 45,000 jump on the 140, I think, or one, yeah. And the 147s are running 75 or vice versa. It fits those same jump nodes that damn near every other bullet runs. And that's why that factory yep. shit shoots so damn good out of there. And, you know, and the six creed, uh, Reamer has a lot more throat in it. The six creed has uh I want to say seventy-five thou throat it uh, jump. It, it does and so and it's happy. A little bit less right. pressure, a little bit less sensitive, you know, to that yes, jump. Yes, it allows so that you can erode the throat faster. To pressurize before, you know, and not push that bullet one way or another. It kind of lets that whole thing get an even pressure around it as that yeah. bullet enters the force cone. You know, I mean there's there's a lot of a lot of cool factors to jump and, and so forth. So I, I ran that 308s, uh, 338 wind mag, 300 wind mag, uh, 338 Lapua, uh, PPC, uh, 22, I mean, just damn near everything. Uh, 222, 223, you know, uh 444 marlins you know in a bolt gun Normas? uh uh 300 norma had a 300 norma uh didn't have a 7 300 that was on my list early on um uh, i'll let you know, you know that's why I, I thought that was the way to go but in my experience i i don't think i'll ever go that big magnum route you know again uh the it's 7 300 prc I think the bullet technology has come so damn far that we can do it with a, we can do great things with smaller cartridges and I've become a lazy shooter. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> I mean, dude, that six, five PRC with a one fifty six bullet, I'm over a thousand foot pounds of energy at a thousand yards. And I'm, I'm inside a 300 Norma to 2,400 yards in every piece, right? In, in 2,200 yards. Wind and elevation, right? I mean, it's, and I've got half the recoil, right? Now your yeah. seven's a different baby, right? But, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I bet you this isn't very far from your seven 300. No, it's not. If not you work the hard seen. numbers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, and the this is probably, probably it's a ton better and I can see the bullet fly, right? And my gun isn't going to change over that. Yeah. But more importantly, this bullet right here is probably the most consistent BC bullet I've shot across any of the uh, lab radar stuff. So, or the uh, applied ballistics radar and what I've seen at distance. I actually have a 6.547 XLT, which I took a 6.547 Lapua. I put an extra 300 thousandths of throat in it, and I shoot those 156 burgers out of it. Huh. Uh, it is very mild on recoil. Uh, it's you got to dial the elevation, but it's inside the wind of a six creed with a tips doing thirty one fifty by a bunch, and it's twenty percent less recoil. 
it's a cool, cool. It was an experiment I tried. And I said, if I don't like it, I'll punch it out to a PRC. And I shot it and it was absolutely one. Of the, it is probably the most accurate rifle I've ever built. Uh, so how, and with 300 thou of jump, how so deep it comes are you seeing that bullet? So it lines up perfect, perfectly at the uh, neck shoulder junction. Okay. You keep so it just 20 thousandths. Here we go. 20, 25 thousandths in front of the neck shoulder junction okay, is the yeah. major diameter, right? Uh, short action mags are 2960, right? Inside. Mm -hmm. And I'm 2900 to that point, which gives me 60 thousandths to the front of the mag and then allows me to chase it for a little bit and not run into any bind issues and be ahead of the possible donut, which you don't get if you don't resize that part anyway. Right. And uh, it is it is it is a baby doll to shoot. It's like watching a golf ball fly through the air. Boom! It's like <laughs> so, it, and it's 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 so efficient because of where that bullet sits. It's really a six br. It's just in a six five, right? You got that big heavy bullet. SDs are crazy good to load for. I mean, what powder, dude? I, I I think I shot almost a grain with the powder charge, and I never had an SD over. I. I don't think I ever had one over five, okay? Because I'm using a little faster powder. It's all burning up behind that weight, 26-inch barrel, 26 or 27. It's just insanely happy. Um, always really efficient. And that's where, you know, yeah, I'm using a little. I ran it on Varget and 4350, right? Which really you should have went to 4831 shortcut, right? I mean, that would be the, the logical place to go. Now that is soft on a barrel. 4831 it's really soft but you got to put a little pressure in front of it to make it happy but uh the uh so really my sds weren't any better with the varget versus 4350 my groups weren't any better with varget versus 4350 my speeds were all the same it was real happy at the same place each time um it was just happy 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 i mean it was crazy efficient it's probably my favorite cartridge I've ever shot. Uh, the only time I run into problem with it is when I put the, uh, in apply ballistics, uh, when I went to enter the information in there, um, I selected the bullet on the profile and then I said, yes, I'll take that bullet used a G seven. And then I tuned it to my, my deal, but I kept all the other data on there. Yeah. Um, well, when you do that, it defaults to a 105 hybrid bullet length or yes. some odd length as and opposed so to giving you is off. my spin drift was off like a mile, like by <laughs> it would throw me off two, three tenths at distance. Right. I mean, it was crazy and I couldn't figure yeah. out what the problem was. Um, well, then once, you know, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, let's break this down. And I measure the bullet. I'm like, oh, well, there's my problem. Right. Because I put a fast twist barrel on it. I think I went to seven or seven and a half to make sure I could get that bullet to about a one seven stability factor, which is what I sure. wanted. So I could go extreme distance. And so I shot it out to a mile uh, where I was transonic at like 14, 1500. And man, it just, it just was so, so happy to drill one little hole. I mean, it, one of the better shooting rifles I ever shot at that distance. But the elevation was, you know, a mile high, right? I mean, it was, Yeah. the BC carries it on out there, 
But in the meantime, if you're if you're off by 10 yards on a target in that sub 800 yards, it shows, you know, huh. uh, because, you know, it, it the BC oh. carries it from at that distance. It keeps the velocity up, but it's that transition. It's definitely got some some elevation. So how how was it on barrel life? Never found Compared out. to like a BR. Uh, I am certain it would have went 3000 rounds. I've never found the end of it. Okay. So yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking it sounds uh, like a great alternative to a BR for practice. It is. The recoil was not bad. So I think my muscle energy was 2200 PSI. Whereas six Creed with one tens doing 31 was 25 or 26. I mean, it was quite a bit less. Uh, and I mean, you just pop and you just sit there and just watch that bullet fly. And I won. So we do some bench rest matches on steel out to a thousand and every match I put that rifle in, I won. So, I mean, it just, it, it's, um, uh, and it's not anything about the rifle. It's just the cartridge is so inherently accurate. And the BC on that bullet is like less than 0.3% BC degradation at distance. It is that bullet is is it's a hunting bullet really right good. it's a yeah. 156 elite hunter yeah and and even whenever each time i've taken it across the ab lab they're like that's the best bullet we've seen right well yeah it's yours you know <laughs> but now i point them and that pointing made so i think it comes out at 320 or 356 i think is what it calls for and it tested about a 357 358 but when you point that bullet man it jumped into the 380s like right huh. now uh, and it liked it. It made a huge difference. And, uh, I think that might be part of why it was so consistent too, you know, uh, I wonder if Berger is, uh, taking notes right now, getting ready to start pointing more of their bullets to get that BC SD down. And cause they're starting uh, to come out with these long range hybrids that are pointed, right? That's yeah. Kind of well, the new... I don't think they have that perfected yet. They're working on it. Um, yeah. So I've noticed on some of them, when you pump the velocity up, the BC really gets erratic. And I'm guessing that maybe they're just lodging that jacket to the, when they're doing that point. They're, they're the most consistent bullets you'll ever measure is those new pointed bullets from them. Like you measure 10 of them and they are freaking the same. So I'm guessing they they have a complete die that's encapsulating that bullet when they point it right top and bottom and the whole thing just clamps pieces together. But I also think that maybe when they're doing that, they're bringing that jacket just free of the core slightly on occasion. So when you push that bullet with the wrong kind of powder, wrong kind of shock, I think you'll see a little bit of. Those are the ones that I'm seeing the vertical dispersion, okay, and that BC degradation. And ironically, when I drop the powder charges to like drop them from like say 2850 to 2750, all that went away. And so I think what's happening is there's a point where you can dislodge that core just a little bit, and which is creating a little bit of vibration or yaw on that bullet, which is where it's scrubbing the velocity. Because they're yeah. leaving the muscle at the same, the identical measuring. I've heard that maybe that they're changing the power, ba the band on the bullet, you know, the, a little bit. That that's a possibility too. 
I understand they pretty well have that figured out now in the new lots of some of those bullets. Um, I haven't done enough. To, I haven't got enough of the new bullets to test it and see. I'm certain it will be taken care of soon, right? Yeah. You know, and, and probably already is. Uh, I just haven't. Uh, uh, I haven't gone through and been able to test them recently to uh, to see that all those are behind them. But I know. I think they make the best bullets out there. So, you know, as far as what you're going to buy in a production bullet, right? So right. Yeah, I I was flat out impressed with those 184s. They just shot so consistently out of that seven psalm and you know. <laughs> well, best bullet I shot out of a 308 is the 180 Burger Elite Hunter. Again, the Elite Hunter bullet. Crazy. <laughs> BC is off the charts, man. If they could let the if the PRS, if they were allowed a 180 grain bullet, that gun shoots with a 6.5 all day long. I think uh, five, I mean, I forget what the BC, 565, it's it's six five bullet BC all day long. Uh, it's incredibly, the most accurate 30 cal bullet I've ever shot. It shoots every seating depth, it shoots really high BC. Uh, you throw that thing in a 95 Palma reamer, which is a pretty short reamer on a 308, the thing loads out yeah. at like two nine. It li it lines up exactly where you want it in the brass, and loads out at like two nine twenty. Right? I mean, it's like you're maximizing a short action for what it can do. The BC is best in the class, you know, of anything. And yeah, if they win hundred eighty grain bullets, that's that thing's insane. It's like you know, the Juggernaut's a consistent bullet, uh, but that one eighty Elite Hunter is like. Huh. Uh, better BC and and more consistent, and it kills shit. I killed a lot of stuff with that bullet. So, <laughs> another question stuff. for you, is it because it sounds like you've been doing this for quite some time and done a fair amount of testing? Have you played around with uh, gain twist barrels and left twist barrels? So uh, I bought one left twist barrel, and I knew I didn't want to do it when I bought it. Okay. <laughs> Um, and, but, you know, I wanted to see what the difference was and I sold that gun not long after it shot just fine. Um, but it was whiz bang horseshit for the most part. If I, what caliber, uh, it was a six forty seven, I think, or yeah, six creed or six forty seven. Okay. Um, uh, but it shot great. But here's the deal, man. Everybody knows that every caliber out there is, for the most part, a tenth of spin drift at 600 yards, six to 800 yards, and two tenths from eight to 11 or 1,000, and three tenths at 12, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you got a left to right wind, uh, you've got your wind drift plus, you know, spin you're drift. adding spin drift, right? And that's six, seven tenths, right? And you got a right to left wind of one mile an hour. It cancels out your spin drift and it's straight up, okay? Well, so now let's say you're a PRS guy and you think you're the smartest some bitch in the world because you're going to have this recoil right into your body, your right hand is shooter, and I know more than everybody in the world. Okay, well, 
if it's a right to left wind, you're holding seven tenths and they're straight up. And if it's a left to right wind, you're straight up and they're holding seven tenths. Who's yep. going to think you're an asshole? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, oh, that man, PRS, I'm that PRS shooter. Um, I've had, uh, I think I'm on my third you. left twist barrel. Um, yeah. I bought one, I liked it, and then I bought uh, two more and then came to the same conclusions you are, you're at. And um, The other conclusion I came to is that the left twist and the recoiling into your body doesn't really happen until you get a bore diameter of a 308 or bigger. So your 6 mil, your 6.5 mil, maybe you'll see it in the 7 mil depending on how fast you're twisting or how heavy that bullet is. But you're you're talking about centripetal force and right. getting that bullet spinning. You know, the counter reaction is the rifle moving. Well, the smaller that diameter is, the less centripetal force there is. So you, you're not going to see that recoil change with the smaller caliber bullets. But with my 308, I 100% feel it and see the difference. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I could buy that. Um, and, and it has bit me in the ass several times. Just like you said, hey, what's your wind call? Uh, it was like three tenths. Oh, wait, don't listen to me. I'm a left twist barrel. They all kind of scratch their head, walk away. And, what the hell is he talking about? And then right. they'll miss some shots or, yeah. or I'll He's do the below reverse. The, equator, the, the toilet goes yeah. a different direction there, right? <laughs> <laughs> or it'll be the reverse. I'll ask somebody, you know, 99% of everybody has right twist barrels. And then, hey, uh, it was seven tenths. And like, I okay, seven tenths. And I'm like, forget to take my spin drift out of it. And then I'm off the target, you know. <laughs> That's why you don't share wind. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, yeah, it just, it, it's not about what you don't gain. It's if someone asks you and you tell them and you're being honest and eh, I'd look at you like, wait a minute, you're a half a mil the wrong way. Boy, you're screwing me, right? You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know? I ain't going to trust so. a word out of your mouth after this. <laughs> right, right. So... Uh, gain twists, I messed with them a little bit. I like the thought of it, that always piling into the leading edge and all that stuff. Um, it it, uh, it made sense maybe that you could string out a node, uh, yeah. you know, and, and, and that could work. My experience was it was no different than anything else, and, and I don't know that I don't know that it, there was any benefit and in, in the couple barrels I had didn't shoot better. If anything, they shot meh, you know, so. Um, so I never went back to it. Right. I just didn't see now I, I could see maybe on a on a rimfire, maybe that there could be some gain to that. Right. Where. Um. Uh, I'd almost like to try that on a rimfire. Um, With a lead projectile? On a lead projectile, yeah. I I just, I'd like to see whether there would be a difference. I doubt there is, but I'd like to just, you know, test that. Um, And a very slow gain twist. If I, you know, my my thoughts are, I I don't, you know, I think, you know, gaining from like a 7.2 to 7.6 is probably a really good choice, right? Or 7.7, 7. not, not you know, just a minimal, even even if that much, right? Yeah. I, I think, uh, 
So what I've noticed more than anything is uh, I degraded to BC on those bullets more. Um, so it's like, a you know, if I run a 236 Krieger versus a 237 or 236 Krieger versus 237 Hawk Hill, and I take my 105 hybrids and I shove them in that tight bore, they shoot really good because they're a tapered bullet and they like a tight bore. Okay. But uh, I take that BC and it'll prove down from a, what would normally be a 273, 275 to 266, 267, right? Hmm. And I throw it in that 237 bore. And then typically I'm seeing 237 to 282, right? You know, so, or 230, 275, 273. And you're able to test this with the E target? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, yeah. So, so like today, I was shooting my BR because I haven't had time to, to break another dasher in. Uh, so I've been too busy building guns, actually. It was a big, I got, I was slow in the wintertime. I thought, man, I'm going to hurry up and get busy here. And I did. Now I'm like, oh, shit, I want to shoot. This is a problem, right? So now I, I, I sold half my barrels that I had for me to somebody else because they needed barrels. And, you know, and then now I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? Oh, I'll just spin up a BR today and and I'll go break it in and shoot it, right? Well, so I shoot to, to prove my BC. I shoot three shots at 100, um, five shots at 1,000, three or uh, five shots at 600, and then three shots at 100 again, right? And I just, okay. that's my process. I do 100, 1,000, 600, and 100. Three, five, five, three, right? And that's my string. And what that does is that proves my zero and my speed, right? Shoot my thousand yard elevation on that target, come back and shoot 600, and then dial back and shoot 100, right? And then I've now got uh, is it 16 rounds, I think is what it is for my velocity. I've got my extreme spread. I've got each round going through. I can prove my BC and it proves right every time, you know? So, yeah. And so, and then I'll take that and if I want to prove it at distance, I can do that. But pretty much most of my, and I document everything I've done. So most of those 236 Kriegers I've had, they really shoot good because especially those burger bullets are a little undersized, you know, and they, they like a nice tight bore. Uh, they shoot great out of a 237 too, right? I mean, but uh, fact, fact is some of my best groups are out of it, but you know, they, they, they're happy in a, in a really tight bore, but I believe that you disrupt that jacket just enough more that you almost all of those barrels were within one point of what I wrote down to BC for each one of those those deals. So to the point where I can say, yep, 236 Krieger, more than likely your lot of bullets is going to run between 266 and 270 on the BC, right? I mean, and almost everyone, depending on how long the, and I actually have each of the bullets written down as to how long they were based to ogive and overall length, but they all pretty much lined up the same and the same lots of bullets because I buy 10,000 at a time, right? So then I put them in the next barrel and every Hawk kill I've had has proved to be 273 to 278, right? Unless I point them, and when they jump into the two nineties, you know, huh. so that's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so, it's, so is it, it three E targets, or are you shooting paper E target and an E target? No, I do 
paper at 100 and e target at six and e target at a thousand and i can do them all okay. from the same bench so yeah. i just shoot 600 a thousand and then we have another pit that's just sits just slightly to our left that's all surveyed to be it's uh from the bench because i shoot off a bench to keep inferior mirage from affecting my elevations and so forth and plus where we're at we've got ridges all the way down so i don't get mirage to speak of that's going to affect my elevation very often or funky light conditions so i can shoot 100 which is actually our, our 900 yard berm i have a target right there on the end shoot 100 it's 101 yards i shoot a thousand and three yards which is what it is from the bench instead of the shooting right. line and then i shoot 603 yards to the 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 e-target there so i set up a shot marker on each one of them yeah. and i get instant feedback on each so i'm that's what uh, i'm looking to, to purchase is some shot markers looking well, and the nice thing is it gives you the x the y it gives you every piece of the equation you want and so yeah. when i'm going across loads i can make sure that i'm in a stable horizontal node because i can look at the load on either side and see that my vertical is within an inch half inch or an inch as i move a tenth of a grain across and it's in a happy place so then i don't have to worry about in a match day two missing targets because my zero shifted right because i have the right seating depth and i'm in a stable mode yeah yeah yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so consistency again is another key it seems to be that that reoccurring theme to winning it is. That's why the BRs are just so dominant, the BR variants, because they'll shoot 500 rounds and never change, or 1,000, or 2,000, right? Yeah. And my 6 by 47 would not finish the match where it started. Uh, now, that said, I think today's technology, I probably could be really happy with it, you know, for 1,000 rounds you know, of consistency uh, before I started chasing at every match, you know. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and I, I ran mine to 14, 1800 rounds, not to say that they don't go all the way. They're incredibly accurate for that whole distance. But, you know, where I could get a load that would last for a thousand rounds and, you know, which would be two and a half matches. So <laughs> by the so time what, you do break, else. What was the deal with dashers when they first came out? It seemed like they suffered uh, a little bit of a tight chamber issue. I, I think, again, because it's a bench rest based cartridge, and here we are trying to shoot PRS matches with it. So I was real fortunate when I started down the dasher path. Um, I didn't go to PTG or JGS and, and have my... Um, gunsmith at the time order me a uh dasher reamer with a 272 neck and put it in there and with a hundred and two thousands free board like everybody else so isaac chamber. frank <laughs> at the time was been messing with the dasher since 2013 or 14 and uh i'm like well, if i'm gonna go down this route i'm going to i mean i've been to 647 and i realized then the big problem the 647 was is everybody bought the 272 neck reamer and they downsized brass and they were having inconsistencies due to that and it was just because they didn't turn brass and we had neck clearance issues right it's almost like a tight neck but it kind of wasn't and you get a little bit of dirt or carbon it created a hell of a nightmare 
Well, I learned from that that we went to 274, huh, and a little bit of freeboard, and the thing got really, really happy, right? Take 136,000 freeboard and a 647 with a 274 neck, that thing is going to shoot, right? 275 neck. Uh, well, and the same thing goes, and that's why the Creedmoor is so good because they made, even in the beginning, they had a big neck, 275 neck or whatever that that allowed them before they made brass. That's why the six Creed became so great. Shit, they just put a little more neck clearance in there. <laughs> you know, there's no magic to it. It isn't a better cartridge uh, by any means. It just happens to be that the Reamer specs were a little better. Um, well, the same thing with the the Dasher. I went and uh, I asked around and I found out who had been doing it. Isaac had been doing it from the beginning. And I'm like, hey, man, I'd like to see what you've learned. He's like, eh, here's what I did on my Reamer. So I ordered that Reamer and I ran it for about a year. And then I started my systematic approach as to everything I do is systematic, break it down and put it back together and figure out where the problem is. And so I tweaked my Reamer print a little here and a little there and, you know, and, and tried to do what the ideals were. And then it really started working and I've been incredibly happy with it. I changed some of the angles up in the front of the neck. Uh, but it still works with your standard bullet central die or, you know, the, the body dimensions are, are all pretty close, but I've got a couple of the radiuses and leads just a little bit different mm. and, uh, and found what seems to be working for me and, um, uh, and is, is really consistent. So had well, I had I'm a super... 272 neck, I would not have liked the dasher had I not. Well, I had a ton of problems in the beginning because, the company that was building my guns did, they were bench rest company, but they did stuff on centers, right? And my brass would work in one cartridge and it wouldn't work in the next one. And I'd get sticky bowl and I'd run in this, which is really why I got into building my own guns. Cause I wanted, I needed that consistency and I couldn't get it right. And if I wanted it, I'd wait forever. So that's when I started breaking into the processes to figure out why's. And then once I figured out the whys, I figured out how to do it better. And then, you know, failed a few times, figured out what my problems were. And each time when I had a problem, I just didn't say, oh, that's a problem. Like, okay, why was this a problem? Break it down. And then once I did that, I was pretty happy with mine. I started doing a few other guises, you know, and other more guises. And then I'm like, you know, I'm never going to want to be a gunsmith because who in the hell can make money cutting a barrel? doing this when I can go make a shit ton of money doing what I do for a living. Well, my life changed a little bit with my family and so forth. And I needed yeah. more time at home. And I'm like, you know what? I'm ready to retire. Screw this. And then, uh, I went and traveled around and, and worked with some really, really good gunsmiths across the country. And, uh, fortunately in the game that I'm in, I got to do that. And these people are all so open. Hey man, let me show you what we do. If you're going to do it, let's do it right. You know? and uh treating people right and then they of course in this community are the best people in the world and they treat you right and uh they took me on and kind of showed me all the different ways they do it and i just i wrote down the pros and cons of everything and then i went and looked at the best cnc guy i could find and the best whatever and i just kept writing them down well help last computer automated stuff i did back in the day was cad r12 i think you know what i mean it was it was it was it was a long time ago when i when i was designing cylinder heads and stuff for summit racing and uh then uh <laughs> i mean it was a long time ago 
so anyway, then I started going down that and making up the list. And then I looked at the CNC route and I realized that was a better way because manually it took me five hours to cut a barrel the way I wanted it done. And how in the hell can you charge for that? You know what I mean? To do it start to finish, it was a five hour project. And, and, and there's how someone can make money doing that isn't, isn't realistic. And then the other side to that is in order to make money, you got to cut the corners down. And it's like, uh, you're going to sacrifice some quality. And there's some guys that can do both, right? But for me to do that, it, it wasn't realistic. Well, then I went down the automated route and found the right machine and found the way to write a program. And then I'm like, okay, well, let's fix this problem and fix this problem. And it took about a year and a half of dealing with really good aerospace engineers that know how to program software that taught me a lot um, and uh, about how to program. And, and, you know, Hey, I said, this is what I want to do. How do I do it? Right. You know, this is where my problem is. This is what I need to accomplish, but I don't know how to tell it to do that. And, uh, um, and then over that, then of course I learned the software and man, I geeked out on it, man. I mean, that is just, if I if if I had seen SolidWorks or Fusion or any of that stuff when I was when thirty years ago when I got done with school forty years ago thirty five anyway I would have gone down a totally different path in my life because I would have been CNC automation everything because um, with what you can what you can do with that is amazing and so realistically I see I've got a big shop out back and another year or so i'll buy another machine or two but i'm still going to be a one-man shop right might have my kids you know uh help me clean the shop and and do that stuff and organize stuff but you know i'm a too much of a control freak all my failures in life have been because of that right i couldn't in my heating company i couldn't i couldn't release control enough to get enough people underneath me to make it where I could have been sustainable without being work at work a hundred and some hours a week. Right. right. So, right. yeah. Yep. Dude, that's, that's super interesting. Cause, uh, I've been talking to my local gunsmith about getting a CNC machine and learning how to do it on that. And, uh, we're interested. Uh, I don't know if, if he's going to take it on or not, but, um, I might get him in contact with you. And if you're willing to share some of the it's... secrets of the trade, <laughs> It's well, you know, that's the thing about this. We all we all share that. But I'll say it's a the learning the software is really the difficult part, right? I mean, yeah. you that that I was fortunate to be in a situation where I could just absorb myself into it and I had really smart people I could call that I could trust that were willing to help me, which man, I owe them everything, right? Um and so when I would run into a problem, I'd spend a day and a half trying to figure it out. And it was really just a one stupid little decision, one just stupid little mark, right? But I spent a day and a half trying to figure it out. And then it was like, nope, this is all you needed to do. Oh, okay. I mean, it's just one click, right? Well, each of those I wrote down and learned the whys and wrote down my list. And and now I've gotten pretty good at it, but um, still, uh, I think automation with a lot of, time and care is the way to go right you know to not try and see how fast not automation from the standpoint of you can do more right automation from the time that 
you can do a better job and you can do it without being in complete control all the time. You can get, spend the, you know, 40 minutes to whatever hour or two out, whatever it takes to get the setup. And then you can start it. Then you can start working on, I can bet a rifle or mark a barrel or whatever. And I'm not focused for that three, four hours, right? right. 50 minutes later, I can go set it up again and I can sit and talk to you or my kid or whatever for a few minutes or have dinner while it's running and, and build that into the day and still, and still it's come just out a with force a better multiplier. Product. It is. Yeah. Yep. Now CNC for making gadgets. That's a different story, right? <laughs> <laughs> Program yeah. that sucker and let it sit there and make money while you're doing nothing. That's a whole different world. You know, that's awesome. Uh, I should have did that a long time ago. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yep. Is there anything you want to cover? I mean, Geez, we've gone over four hours. This oh, is going to yeah. be a uh, how long, two-part how long we series on this one. <laughs> how long did we go, really? Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at the timer. It says four hours and 17 oh, minutes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, no, I have to keep some of the other stuff for Secret Squirrel shit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, I have a my uh, 7300 Norma Reamer. Can I send that to you and have you look it over? And sounds like you know some tweaks to some dimensions and radiuses that uh might help it along only after i had problems i wanted to fix right but uh so what did you do for your dies how did you do your dies so that's a, that's where you get squirrely yeah. when you start tweaking on reamers you really a lot of the guys that cut dies uh, only like to do it certain ways and they like to have a 45 degree radius here instead of a 60 because that's how they've always done it and, uh -huh. and that's really where you get into problems when you start getting custom dot or, you know, when you go to a custom cartridge, like what you have, you start tweaking the numbers and then you go to get dies made. And most of the die companies don't want to tweak those numbers. They put in four or five dimensions and, uh, populate the rest. And so, so I sat down or on the phone, I, I called up JGS and I, I forget the guy's name I talked to, but I, I swear I, uh, over the course of three months, I spent about five hours on the phone with him and kind of went over some issues that I had thought the cartridge might have and how to solve them. And I wanted to do a, a 37 degree shoulder and, you know, we're tapering certain things, different ways. And he's telling me about, you know, well, the, the Sammy spec reamer has a problem because it's open at the base and because it's made for a machine gun. So we're going to measure all the brass and, you know, tighten it down to this specific dimension around the brass and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a pretty well gone over reamer print. Um, a lot of the, the changes we made um, were based on the brass and, and what we expect the the neck diameter to be after I'm gonna have to neck turn. So like you were saying, you, you're necking it down, even though it's only yep. 30 cal to, you know, 284. I, I'm still gonna turn it, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, the dies are gonna be made by Warner Tool Company, and okay, I trust them. They know their shit. They're they're going to do, you know, like I said, a cylinder for the body, and then the next shoulder is going to be a, a, a single bushing. 
And um, I've used their dies for a number of other cartridges and just been blown away with how good they are. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when I, if I was to start all over with the Dasher early on, what I would have done is I would have ordered a resize reamer at the same time and made my own die. Right. Yeah. To my exact dimensions. And that would have been, I'd say, probably the biggest headache. I've come across in Dasher and all the time is getting everything to size properly, not oversize the shoulder versus the ass and, and size yeah. all the way down. Uh, I generally make order my dies a little long and then I cut them shorter. And uh, uh, so do you bump uh, the shell plate against the die? Close. So what I took is I took a shell plate and I machined 40 thousandths or 50 thousandths off the top of it. So it's flat. And yep. And then I took and ordered uh, my dies. And when I ordered them, I had an extra 100 thousandths put on them. And then I cut them to where, you know, I put the radius on the bottom and, and so forth, where it's a minimal radius at the, at the base of it. And uh, uh, it's been been pretty awesome. Now that said, since I've started down the path of the CNC world, um, that's not critical anymore because my brat, number one, all my barrels, I haven't changed my die setup in 10 barrels. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I'm, I'm able to keep to half a thou easy or less of headspace from one barrel now to a barrel a year from now in the system that I do, the diameter stays exactly the same. My reamers are barely even used because I actually pre-bore a chamber that's 5,000 sunder and then I go with a floating reamer and just touch it. Boom, comes out perfect, right? The reamer doesn't see where. The, it floats in, it self-centers and touches it off. So if that machine moves a little bit, it's a non-issue. You know I mean? I, I've taken a lot of extra steps in, in how, how I go across this process and it's proved to be other than time consuming, pretty solid. Like it takes me probably 40 or well, over twice as long, almost three times as long to cut versus what a guy can cut with a CNC. But it's still a third the time of what it would take me to do a, the equal job on a manual. Right. right? You know, right. I can do a barrel one end or the other perfect. Uh, to what my standards of perfect are, right? Somebody else's, it might be junk. I don't know. But, you know, what my standards are of, of, of what I want to see, um, I, can, I can maintain, I can do typically a barrel in about two hours, both ends, you know. Assuming it indicates, well, it's normally 45 minutes to 50 minutes to indicate the, the uh, uh, chamber end. Yeah. Uh, you know, That's 15 minutes to cut that chamber time is. and, 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 you know, 10 minutes to thread it, or five minutes to thread it, then flip it around. I spend just as much time indicating the crown. I mean, I spend 20 minutes to 40 minutes, whatever it takes there. So whatever it takes to make it perfect, uh, or, you know, as, as good as I can see, no, no visible possible change, you know I mean? And the bad thing is you get it where, gosh, it's so close. You can't, you know, oh, wait, no, that's not right. And you make a tweak and then you're starting all over. And some days you just got to go have dinner and come back the next morning. Right. You know, but, <laughs> you know, but it's the indicating you, 
you pay me to indicate a barrel because that machine only takes an hour and 10 minutes to do everything it needs to do. Right. But I have easy an hour, you know, 45 minutes on one end. It might go in 20. It might go in two hours. But, you know, I mean, typically it's 45 minutes on one end and 25 on the other. And and then, don't you, you wish know, there was a way to automate the centering and, and alignment of the uh, axis of the barrel to to the machine? Ah, uh, I think there is, but I don't think I trust it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably costs a lot of money too. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And I don't think you'd ever do it gunsmithing. Uh, but, uh, no, I mean, I, I, uh, it, you know, and that said, I take all this extra time and there's 27 other guys doing it 27 other ways and their guns shoot just as good. You know what I mean? So there, I'm just, what I'm trying to do is make that piece of brass be the same year after year after year. And with these little BR variants, it's more critical because there's no webbing in the ass end of them. Right. You know, they're, they're really made for efficiency. Uh, But the back of my barrel is always the same. The diameter is always the same. So if part of that brass doesn't get sized properly, it doesn't really show up over the course of 10 or 12 firings for the most part, if you're sizing the rest of it, you know, uh, not as much, uh, on the other hand, a resize uh, the proper dies, man, if I'd started in the beginning with a resize reamer and made my own die and my, my reamer, that would have just made my life a whole lot better in the beginning, but I never would have got, Never would have taken the game to as far as I've taken it. So the mistakes is where I learned. So, yeah. Yep. So for you, if I was doing a, a really cool cartridge like that, I probably would order a resize reamer that's identical. But Warner Tool is going to cut you a great piece. It's going to work just fine. And if it doesn't, they can tweak it and make it better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. So, yep. Yeah. And, and yep. once you have the die body, ordering the inserts is pretty cheap. It just takes exactly. time. Yeah. But, uh, yep. Um, what, uh, if, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, have a rifle built, how would we get a hold of you? Uh, so easiest way is probably go right to, uh, uh, ice on the internet. Uh, that'll e- direct you to my email, which is ice rifles, LLC at Gmail. Uh, my phone number's on there. You can call me if I'm at a match, I'm not going to answer the phone. If I'm driving no match, I'm not going to answer the phone. So if you're calling me on Thursday night, Friday, and I'm driving 15 hours, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday, I'm not going to answer the phone when I'm driving that truck. And when I'm at a match, that phone doesn't leave the truck. My wife knows, don't call me, call the match director. She needs to get a hold (laughs) of me because uh, I'm just not going to answer, not going to answer the phone because when I'm at a match, I need to be in the match, right? You know, now when I'm on the way back to the shop, come, you know, if I'm, if it's a close match Monday, great. If not Tuesday morning or whatever it is, you know, I answer the phone every day. You know, if I, <laughs> if I'm running the machine, then, you know, if I'm setting up a barrel, once I hit go, well, then that's when I catch up on the phone calls. And, uh, uh, my training classes aren't all on there right now. Uh, as far as my training schedule, uh, the reason is, is, uh, I used a range to do it last couple of years. And then this year I just found the private facility. And I don't have the schedule set up yet as far as where all my matches are going to line up and 
when I have free weekends and I try and overlay them with matches. Like when I go to New Hampshire, I'll do a couple days up there uh, ahead of time. And, you know, I've got uh, probably going to do Virginia and Texas, you know, as far as around the country. And then everything else will be around here. So, okay. which is Ohio. So, yeah. And uh, matches, which which matches are you doing west of the Mississippi? Where might I see you? I'm looking to shoot a match with you. West of the Mississippi. So, I'm going to shoot my match in Colorado, but you're going to be at Scott's match, which yeah. I would recommend, right? Right? Because <laughs> I, I, I would be at Scott's match if I wasn't running a match. Um. Uh, but it will be the best PRS match, I think. And I guarantee you next year, it's going to be, as far as PRS matches go, I expect it to be as good as they come. Okay. Have you been to the facility? Have you been to Cameo? Uh, yeah, I flew out there and we laid Isn't out the match. Isn't that an amazing place? And Yes. And uh, so next year when we run that, it's going to be... It's going to be a different kind of PRS match. You're not going to shoot off a one, two by four, right? You're going to, we're, we're going to give you designated shooting areas and let you solve the problem, right? You know, we're, we're going to give you an idea, but then let you figure it out. If you want to find another way to do it, I'm going to try and incorporate as much of that as possible because I don't want to tell you how to shoot better. You can show me how you shoot better, right? I'll give you an idea, then you figure out if there's a better way. It's not gaming. It's just shooting better, right? Yeah. It's figuring out a better, better way to solve it um west of the mississippi so uh because i'm not really going to any matches east of the mississippi so yeah well it's kind of the same for me because there's so many on the <laughs> other side and it's not because i don't no. like going out west so i'll be i mean at the finale uh prs finale in new mexico i'll probably pick up one of the Oki matches somewhere i'm going to the wyoming hunter match nrl hunter wyoming i'll be I'll there see you there okay that'll be awesome yeah. so yeah, we're uh, flying into Detroit, I think, on uh, Thursday night. And I think it's only like a two-hour ride over to so two drive and a half it? hours. Yeah, and to, we'll, we'll, wow. get a, we'll get a rent-a-car there, and okay. we'll drive from uh, Denver. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, Denver. I'm planning on sleeping in a uh, canvas wall tent at the match with a buddy. So Are you really? So we're going to do the whole hunter series uh camp out yeah <laughs> dude that would be pretty cool because you're not going to have any humidity it's going to be comfortable yeah. yeah that would be that'd be pretty Could awesome be windy. especially if we might get blown off the face of the earth but you know yeah <laughs> yeah this is wyoming i don't even know i think we've rented an airbnb up there but i'm not sure uh i can't remember i didn't i didn't take charge of that so i'll see you at that match Cool. As far as the, other than that, we're running a match in Colorado. Uh, we got, I don't think I'm shooting anything in Texas. There's so many matches on the East Coast this year. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to go to New Hampshire and, you know, I've been to a match every weekend for the last four weeks. So I was, let's see, Florida two weeks ago, Virginia this last weekend. The weekend before that was North Carolina, and then I flew into Colorado in between those two. So that's kind of. And you're you're mostly and I'll be in Pennsylvania uh, this weekend. You're mostly PRS shooting, and you're chasing the AG Cup, and I'm uh, I'm mostly shooting NRL matches, and now some Hunter matches. So it's kind of a division in the state of affairs there. 
It's not a division. Realistically, I shot. Uh, I was the first in two years where they shoot the NRL. 2018, maybe. I think I was the only guy east of the Mississippi go to the NRL finale. Uh, and I shot both the PRS and the NRL that year. And uh, I think that was the right year. It was uh, in Idaho there. Yeah. Uh, yeah yep. So uh, I shot both that year, but they had a couple East Coast matches. And then I flew to the West Coast to do the rest. Right. Yeah. Um, but then the next year they were going to have some. And I signed up for all the East Coast stuff. And then it all got canceled and they got run out. And it was just a pile of shit. You know. Which well, there's felt- too many matches that year. It, it was just. It was too many matches every year. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So uh, personally, I'd love to shoot both. But in order to be effective in the NRL, I have to shoot four to five matches. Four matches to have a way to win the finale. Right. I mean, I don't want to shoot just to say I made the finale. My goal is to go in there with the ability to have a chance. So I need to shoot three, really four to cover for any shortcomings. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what I need to do to have, be effective going to the finale. Um, you know, because there's, I just need to have a, have a, have a thing plus a finale. So that's $15,000. I figured it would cost me $12,000 to shoot the NRL because there's no matches east of the Mississippi. You got to fly in a car hotel. Yeah. I mean, fly, rent a car, uh, take the time off work, the extra day for the flights each way, you know, it, yeah. it's just a lot of time and money. Um, and until they get four matches east of the Mississippi and six matches or 10 matches west, um, where I can hit one or two here and then fly out to Washington for one or whatever, and then go to the finale. That's, uh, I, I just really can't, I can't shoot well at both. Right. The the PRS is the most competitive thing there is on the East Coast. So and I want to shoot against the best competitors and that I can. And here, that's what we have. If I lived out where you guys were are, I probably would be shooting NRL because that's where the best competition is, because there's not enough PRS matches to have, you know, the Nick Gadarzis and, you know, the pinches and the Viverts and the and and the Brian, you know, uh, you know, Brian Black, the, the Pence, Nice, you know, all those guys, they're just, you know, yep. uh, Paul Dolan, you know, all those guys Morgan. that can shoot, they shoot, you know, out there in that area. But I want to shoot against the best competitors I have. And in my region, it happens to be PRS. Yeah. So hopefully they'll get half the matches out here where I can pick six PRS matches, three AG Cup matches and, you know, a couple NRL matches and. And then go, go shoot all finales. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, it, it's a lot of time. But yeah, it so is. I, I'm really a fan of both. I don't. I'm pro precision rifle. I don't really give a shit whether it's got an NRL, a PRS, or a hunter behind in front of it, right? And or, or the, whether they shoot MDT chassis or MPAs or or foundations, right? I am pro this community because this community is the best people I've ever met in my life. So, you know, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of how I wrap my head around it is, you know, pro the community. And uh, I just want to be against the best competitors I can find. And in my area, it happens to be PRS. Yeah. And uh, you're going to make Colorado. A... I don't think there's anything going on in Colorado now. Is that about right? <laughs> there, there, there's a few. Are you going to try and make a run for that International Rifle Federation? 
Or I think I got that right. Uh, Scott, I would. Would Scott's I do it in a minute? It, right. Yeah. So that was one of the reasons I was going to do the Hunter series, and I realized them guys can really shoot. <laughs> uh, but no, I uh, I would love to. I don't know that I have the extra competitive drive now to try and shoot for that top three or four spot throughout the year. I want to just. I'm happy in that top ten ish, but I don't know that I want to take the time away from my family to really, I know what it takes, right? Yeah. I've done it. I know what it took. And it's a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of, of work. And I guess I might be hitting that old man part in my life where I'm just really ha I have that competitive drive that's insane and I can't stop it. But I'm kind of comfortable uh, not spending three hours a day practicing, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, uh, for me, that's what it, what it takes to, to do that. You know, there's guys that don't need that. But for me, that's, I got to work harder than everybody else to accomplish the same goal. You know what I mean? So. Uh, there's guys that are 25 years younger that have better eyes that are, you know, physically better and, and maybe a little more gifted. And I have to work through those things. I have the mental side of it pretty good, which is the, I would say the bigger factor. Uh, but I don't like myself when I get that competitive as a person, right? I'm not as, I'm not as good. Of, I'm a, I'm the greatest guy in the world, but there's a point where, then all of a sudden I get a little too competitive and I don't know that that's where I want to be in my life. This, at this point in my life, I'm really structured this gunsmithing business so I can be a part of this community for the rest of my life, you know, say four or five years from now and I'm irrelevant as far as a competitor and then just a, a good guy to shoot with. And I'm kind of setting myself up for that now, you know, w will I go to that? Yeah. If I went to that, would I shoot harder than everybody else? Yeah, I would. I'd practice harder than everybody. And, and I would probably shoot exceptionally well. Um, but am I going to go spend the time chasing it all year? Uh, I don't see myself doing that. If, if I happen to be shooting well enough that now that I have a training facility 10 minutes from the house and, and, you know, and be back at it where I can train every day for an hour a day, eh, maybe, you know, but, uh, I need components to do that. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the only one. But, right. Uh, how, how old are your kids? So we have kids, I have kids go, uh, 15 16 19 and 21 okay so 21 22. i have an eight-year-old and uh okay just getting her into shooting so it's it's an adventure my my son i got him into it a couple years ago and you know all my kids well most of them have martial arts backgrounds too and 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 so they really are really disciplined and understand the whys of everything and so forth and man, when he got into shooting, he was better than me in every way. Um, and, uh, and, uh, then I might've, I didn't push him too hard, but he didn't like getting out of bed at five in the morning to go somewhere yeah. and, uh, like, oh, come on, let's do it. And I pushed him to do that one or two too many times. 
so I backed off him for the last year and a half. But man, he has he has all that talent. Uh, and when I showed him the fundamentals and what to do, he completely got it because he knew from karate, you know, hey, if you didn't move the guy's elbow before you threw the punch, you were going to get hit in the face, and that's not a good thing. So you move <laughs> the elbow, and then you throw the punch, and you move this to do that. And when you tell him you have to build the position this way and this is why, he understands all that and just systematically has that analyzing mind that breaks it down. And and I never had to tell him twice. And gosh, man, I've never had a student like that, you know, that I could go through and just show them one time and they understand four times beyond what I showed them the whole whys because, you know, they've seen it. So. I don't know. I hope he gets back into it because he's, he has that, he has that talent. I mean, all my kids are hunters. They've all killed deer with a bow by the time they were eight, every one of them. So, uh, and you know, they're crazy hunters and good shooters. And I started them with fundamentals from the beginning, shooting 22s of charcoal briquettes, man. You want to teach a kid to shoot? Start with a charcoal briquette at like 10 feet because they, you know, you buy a bag of them for nothing. And I built this little stick and give them a 22 and then just step them back five feet at a time and then start <laughs> betting them, giving them nine cents if they could hit it and nine shots, you know, or whatever. And, and, and man, they love reactive targets. Shooting steel is kind of cool, but watching the little charcoal briquettes pop in the air every time. <laughs> bag I'm going to have to try that. It is a great thing. I started them with a, uh clay pigeon and it didn't always break you know you just punch holes in it and we went down to charcoal briquettes and man they love shooting charcoal briquettes so <laughs> a little little made a little frame that i could set them on i just set them across and they'd shoot them and i'd pick up pieces and then later i'd pick up half of pieces and yeah charcoal briquettes man that's the way to go i, I took my daughter out to the grasslands and uh there's a bunch of grasshoppers I gave her a BB gun. I was like, go shoot, you know, shoot whatever you want. Just, you know, taught her some basics, you know, don't look at your target, look what's behind it. Okay. Don't ever point yeah. it at anybody, you know, some safety rules. And, and, uh, and she was, uh, definitely afraid of the grasshoppers. So I was like, okay, we'll shoot the grasshoppers then. And, right. uh, she had, she had some fun. It was great. <laughs> She's shooting right. them at like, 15 feet away i was like that's a pretty good shot you know right <laughs> a little red rider bb gun it's not very accurate it's pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> so good. yeah well i watched jimmy gillum with a uh a red rider bb gun with no sight on the front shooting aspirins he was or dimes he would throw up in the air and shoot the dime every time while it was in the air flipping through the air <laughs> no i i mean I'm guessing if you if you do it enough, it's like everything else. It makes sense. But a Red Rider BB gun hitting a, you know, tossing dime up and shooting it every time. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> impressive. Yep. That's awesome. Keith, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking with Man, you. Great talking to you. I look forward to doing it again. Hope to see you. Well, we'll see you in what what is it? Uh it's not April. Is it April? It's about a month nice. away, five weeks away. Okay. Well, I'll I'm, show I'm... you a, a really cool rifle when you get there. Okay. <laughs> because I will say that MDT chassis is the coolest hunting chassis I've ever touched in my entire life. And, I mean, it's not because <laughs> I wear an MDT jersey. It is the coolest thing I've ever shot. 
Uh, fact is, I shot it in two PRS matches, and I loved it at nine pounds. And I'm like, Dang. huh. Yeah. I, I mean, not a smart move, but I just wanted to know what I needed to know, right? And I realized that I needed to, well, it brought my fundamentals back, right? I mean, I made sure that gun was, man, if that gun wasn't right here and it was out here, I was riding that horse, you know what I mean? Versus you know, me telling the horse where to go. So, yeah, uh, it's a pretty cool rifle. I, I am, I'll shoot the hell out of it, hopefully, a month or so before the match, so probably now probably when i get back for more rifles i'll start shooting it in all the club matches well i'm so. in the process of doing a keith baker barrel break-in process on my 6547 barrel <laughs> hey. eight eight You've rounds about cleaning that. cleaning every shot yeah I've, I've heard you on a couple other podcasts so it that's why i wanted to bring you on this one you know i wanted to get those reloading secrets from you but uh um yeah so i kind of saw the same thing because i started out with that bench rest mentality um did a very similar barrel break-in process with my first couple of barrels and then started kind of cutting corners and cheating and they all shot good but I, I swear i've seen the same thing that you've seen where they were good they just weren't as good and so yeah i'm hoping i'm gonna do this uh lengthy barrel break-in process again and hopefully i'll see some magic and it only takes about 15 extra minutes to do it really you know what i mean it's really not that big a deal <laughs> yeah so i mean to go over it for for people who maybe haven't heard it um what i'm doing is shoot once clean shoot once clean do that somewhere between five and eight times and then do shoot five shots clean five shots clean do that uh about three or four times and then start doing larger sets of, of shots like 20 to 50 and then when you get around 200 rounds then you can relax that and it should be broken is, is that about right it is yeah so pretty much i do seven to ten rounds one shot and clean uh and the barrel you tells you but really that you know seven to ten rounds one shot and clean like three rounds and clean for one one or two times five rounds in clean, 10 rounds in clean. And then uh, it's pretty good at that 35 rounds there. I'll put another 50 on it or whatever, uh, 50 to 100. Maybe I go shoot, uh, you know, put another eight rounds on it and shoot like a little one-day match or something. But, you know, but another 50 rounds, I like to clean it somewhere, you know, at about another 40, 50 rounds. Give it a pretty decent clean then. Uh, just really patching it to keep the carbon out at that point. And then, uh, at my 180 to 200 rounds, wherever I'm going to start my load development, I'll give it a thorough clean about then 15, 20 rounds to foul. And, uh, and then I clean it whenever, you know, every three to 500 rounds at that point. And, uh, I think the first 25 are really the ones that matter, you know, that first little window that's, a, is that leads it wrote is lapping in um i think uh, uh I, I think how you're flowing oil down through there and whether you have chatter in there when you're cutting at and the speed you're cutting and how sharp your reamer is kind of comes into play as to how much is hmm. how long you need to do that first little bit um but really i keep it really damn clean you know for are you cleaning uh, copper out during that time I never touch my copper. Never. Really? 
No, okay. never touch it. So the only time I touch copper is on my two, two, three, where I shoot 500 rounds in like 10 minutes or whatever. And, you know, and I could damn near melt copper in the barrel, you know, if it doesn't shoot, I'll, I'll patch out, wipe out that thing and uh, go from there. But no, I don't, I don't touch copper because so my, my thoughts are is if you got, of course we're talking cut rifle barrels. We're not talking, you know, we're, we're talking cut rifle barrels, not factory barrels. And we're talking, you know, good chamber jobs and everything else. But realistically, I'm just wanting to keep the carbon out and allow that throat to naturally lap in, right? And have only the bullet hitting it each time and not road one way or the other. And 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 I and I think the barrels shoot longer and they shoot better that way. And then I don't want any carbon to get built up in there where I could have a potential carbon ring or anything like that, because that's when that's most porous and and that's when it's got like, gosh, man, those first few rounds are oily and nasty. And I mean, there's just a lot of carbon and you just get all that stuff out of there. Then I clean it up pretty good. Sometimes somewhere between 50 and 100 rounds ish. Again, I do another handful of patches and then dry it up. But I don't even pull the brush on it at any of those points. I put the brush to it. Uh, at that 180 round, depending on the caliber, right? If I was shooting a six, 647 at 150, 175 rounds, I would clean it and then probably be ready to do load development. With the BR variants, though, I've seen them change a number of times at 200 to 240 rounds. So because there's just not enough powder and not enough heat always. And, yeah. and, the, and, and they're just they're not stable, I think, to 250 rounds or maybe even a little bit more. So I typically go about 200 rounds, 180 to 200, give it a pretty good clean, like with a brush, get all that carbon out and so forth. Do a small fouling over 10 or 15 rounds, maybe a little mini load development thing, but really nothing. Just put some rounds through there. After the next 15, 20 rounds, then I'll do my velocity test or my seating depth test or whatever yeah. and start my load development. And over the next 40 rounds, that puts me at 250 to 275. By the time I'm ready to shoot the match, everything's stable and it's never going to change again. Right. And then I just I clean it after that. I've never had to touch copper in a barrel uh, for a normal barrel. All I do is touch the carbon. So I do that cleaning process, clean patches till it's clean, or, you know, wet patches till it's clean. Then I stroke it with the, the uh, brush Then I wet patch it again. And all of a sudden, man, it's dirty as hell. Just two or three patches. Then I dry it out real good. And at that point within four rounds, typically or less, it's back up to speed and it's happy. So if I touch that carbon or if I take the copper out and I use patch out wipeout or that foam stuff or sweets, I tried Butch's Borshine. I seen that you like to use Butch's Borshine. And originally, man, that was that was what I used for years. Uh, but but then it does eat copper a little bit. It eats copper a little bit, and it doesn't eat carbon. So yeah. I, that's what I used. And I was like, wow, man, this thing's squeaky clean. Because I went down to Oklahoma, and, man, all these Okies, man, you got to use Butch's Borshine right now. I'm like, all right, man, that's good shit. And I did, and I was pretty happy with it. Well, then... I realized, then I tried Bortec, I kept being told Bortec, Bortec, Bortec. Well, then I tried it. C4. I'd use my Butch's Borshine and I had that thing clean as a whistle, right? I put two patches of Bortec C4 through that thing and they come out black. And I'm like, huh, weird. <laughs> and I put about three more through there and they still come out black. And it was as clean as that thing could be with that Butch's Borshine. And I'm like, okay, so it's great. It's a great cleaner. This, it's fantastic. This is for a black patch with co carbon on it, not a gray patch rubbing 
stainless out of the barrel, right? No, no, this is black carbon coming out. Okay. And I was like, okay, so (laughs) there's something to this eating carbon because that's all I want to get out of there is the carbon, right? The copper, so that copper builds up to a point and it becomes eutectic. It's every bullet going down the barrel is stripping as much as it's leaving behind, right? So it becomes very happy and stable. Um, So unless you have a problem with your throat in those first few rounds or something along that line. Now, I don't have a problem if you want to use a copper remover for those first 10 rounds of your barrel break in or whatever. I just haven't seen a need for it, you know, with, with the stuff I've used. Uh, Now, if I was breaking in a factory barrel, you know, or, you know, uh, something along that line, totally different story. I'm going to copper cleaning the shit out of that. And, you know, uh, it's a different process, right? I may even pull out IOSO paste, you know, I mean, I don't know what the hell I'll do. Um, don't ever do that inside of a cut rifle barrel, right? Um, if you want to peel jackets off of your seven, run a little lot. Yeah. Do the old bench rest IOSO patch through there and you make a smooth finish in there and you're going to rip jackets off of bullets and ruin, ruin a bore, right? Because a porous finish is a lot faster than a rough, than a smooth one. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so I did use um, Vortex paste, and it's got an abrasive in it. And I listened to the directions, and it says to do back and forth motion, going down the barrel and back. And yeah, I fucked up two barrels doing that. Huh. Yeah. Pretty sad. Well, and so I'll use ThoroughClean. Like if somebody gives me a carbon ring and I need to scrub something out, I'll use ThoroughClean in there. Yeah. which is that two-part stuff. And it's got a little bit of a, a abrasive, abrasive to it, too. And I will tell you, it smooths the bore out. Like, I can feel a patch later kind of squeaky going down that barrel, kind of like after I did IOSO. They still shoot pretty good. And, I mean, gosh, some of the better gunsmiths in the world say to use it, and I'm not saying to not to. It's great for getting shit out of a barrel. If you need to clean it out, that's how you get carbon out of a barrel because it's coming out. But if you get a little overzealous with that, it's going to be just like cleaning a barrel yeah. too well with IOSO paste. And if you're not cleaning it after every shot, man, you can – shit starts to stick, right? I mean, it gets too smooth in there. and Too smooth yeah. is not a good thing. It's grippy. Yeah. It is, yeah. So, so when you say a brush, are you talking about a nylon brush or a bronze brush? I use a – well, so if I got to get stuff out, like if, if somebody has a carbon ring and they got a problem or a gun that will not shoot and I don't seem to be able to clean it up with carbon remover or whatever, because I don't know, for whatever reason, uh, I would go to a, a, a bronze brush. It's oversized. So if it's six, five, I use seven millimeter. If it's, you know, six millimeter, I might use a six, five and then really scrub like a throat area out or something along that line with, um, the, uh, um, thorough clean or whatever else but all i use is a nylon brush and good old vortex c4 C4. yep that stuff is is just it's awesome it takes all everything out i want it to take out and it doesn't take anything out i don't want it to take out and i mean typically within two rounds i say four but within two rounds that barrel is stable again so if you're putting um if you're putting c4 on a brush um take a tall shot glass and fill it, you know, a quarter of the way or halfway up with C4 
let it sit for two, three weeks, and it'll start to evaporate and get thicker. It'll turn into something more like a, a detergent, um, you know, dishwasher detergent thickness. Okay. Then you, then you run your brush in that, and it it traps more uh, C4 in the brush, and it seems to collect more carbon. I don't know if it's cleaning better. It, it may or may not be cleaning better, but it does seem to visibly take more carbon with it. <laughs> okay. Well, so that would make me nervous to let it sit and, and wonder what might change in it. Uh, I talked to him about it, and he says it's just water. Just the water's evaporating. and Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, then I like he said, it. If you want, right. if you want to return it back to the original state, add a little water, mix it up, and it goes back to the way it was. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, then I'll try that, actually. <laughs> I, I like that idea. Uh, so, no, I had not heard of that. That's a, that's a new one and a good one for me. That stuff is... It's pretty it's awesome. Good. I mean, it's yeah. it's it doesn't stink. It doesn't eat your hands up. It um, does what it's supposed to. <laughs> it does exactly what it's supposed to. And I've not used their copper remover because so you take copper out of a barrel at all, like even patch out, wipe out. It would take me 40 rounds sometimes for that barrel to come back for just basic patch out, wipe out. And then it'd be 40 rounds. That barrel is not stable. It would not yeah. be the right speed. It would be. It would just not be happy. And if I took a lot of it out, it might be 60 rounds, right? And that's a lot of rounds that aren't doing me any good. Sure. Um, so uh, so I got away from that, you know, but. Okay. Well, that's yeah. interesting to know. I, I may have uh, misinterpreted your cleaning regime. So now, now I'm a little more knowledgeable. Well, there, I mean, there's no problem taking the copper out for the first 10 rounds if you want to do that and, you know, use a copper cleaner. It's probably even a better choice. Uh, I just... You're getting that that smoothing effect all the way down the barrel, the, the burnishing almost, right? Pretty much, yeah. And, and really, you're getting that lead lapped in and you're get, keeping the carbon out because carbon is... Dude, you want the bullet to be the first thing to hit that each time. And and if you get carbon carbon on one side versus the other, and that's how it, how it lays out in there. I mean, it's and now all of a sudden you're scrubbing one side, not the other, and I take all this time to cut a perfect chamber that's as straight as possible, and now we're going to plow out one side versus the other. I, I, that's the only thing that makes sense. I I can't tell you why it's better. But I'll tell you every damn gun that I've done that way seems to be noticeably better and and most of the customers have told me the same. And I've got some of the greatest gunsmiths in the country to tell me I'm completely wrong. And I believe that they, that's, that's right too. Right. But <laughs> me, every systematically, I've proved it to myself. Well, and I don't believe it's a placebo for me. And I don't, uh, I don't know where the difference is between how everybody finds their best thing, but a lot of, a lot of really good sharp guys have come up to me and said, yeah, that's, that's what we found too. And there's a big difference. So, you know, um, uh, I think all the damn guns are going to shoot pretty good and it might make it shoot a little better. I guarantee it ain't going to make it shoot worse. So it's worth it. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I agree. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, all right. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there. It's now going on five, five hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody that's watching the show, if you made it this far, my only suggestion to you is to go back and rewatch it at one and a half speed. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> because <laughs> i know you're gonna relearn something but uh you, you'll Keith, catch you'll catch 37 times where i was full of shit in this conversation <laughs> right <laughs> um keith hang on the line with me for just a little bit longer and uh thank you everybody for watching the podcast i'm lou smith keith baker and uh he's at ice rifles um reach out he's he's a great guy and uh yeah i look forward to to uh, shooting with you again soon Thanks. <laughs> Man, you're fun to talk to. I mean, it went five <laughs> hours and <laughs> wasn't even trying. I'm just, I'm now a good I just hope that it recorded it. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs>